A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Foundation Podcast. We are the Lorehounds, your guides to psychohistory. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our coverage of the Apple TV Plus original series, Foundation. In this podcast, we're going to do a scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 2, Episode 7, A Necessary Death. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about our podcasting schedule for August and early September. A reminder that you can find all our podcasts on Spotify and YouTube, as well as all of the other major podcast platforms. Speaking of podcasting platforms, if you are indeed enjoying what we do, we'd like to ask that maybe you take a moment and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Apple's the big SEO engine, and the more reviews we have on their system, the more people can find us, even in the outer reach. For ad-free episodes, if it's not your thing to go on those public feeds, uh, and if you want early access and exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash the lorehounds. You can subscribe and support us for as little as $3 a month. Lastly, we love to respond to your questions, thoughts, and theories on air. So send us feedback for the next episode. Send emails to empire at the lorehounds.com or head to our website and either use the voicemail feature or the contact form. You can also post a message on our Discord server, and we can include those as well. Links are in the show notes for that. John, episode seven. I think this might be my favorite episode so far of the season. Uh, what did you think? What's your hot takes for this? I watched it after you had told me it was the best episode ever three times, and I think it might have hyped it a little too hard for me. (laughs) Probably. Because I I walked in expecting to be blown off my ass. Gotcha. And I I wasn't. I wasn't. It was good. It was still really good. I just was like, okay, all right. This is David's greatest TV of the last 20 years. uh, (laughs) Sorry, I probably (laughs) overstated my That's okay. That's okay. But it was really good. It was honestly really good. I think this season keeps getting better. I think this 
this was probably the best season of the episode so far. This one or the last one, one of the two. Right. I think you liked the last one so much. And then I was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's good. I really enjoyed it. And then this one, I think in a sort of a seesaw type motion, you know, really got got me off guard. So we will have a lovely banter about our differing views. But <laughs> I, honestly, I did. I didn't not like it. I, I liked yeah, of it quite a lot. I just uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop listening to your opinions beforehand because it's going to it's going <laughs> to sully my own. Right. Fair enough. I thought it was really great, though. I thought that they very much paced the episode well between the different plot lines. And that's hard to do when you have these disparate plot lines with Hober Mallow in one corner, Constant and Polly in another, Salver and Gale, all doing very different things at the same time. Yeah, that's and a good it point. felt like we spent enough time with each of each of them to make it mean something. Whereas last episode, I will say, I think Hober Mallow's thing could have been completely skipped and I wouldn't have noticed. Okay. But then we needed it to sort of prep this episode. Yeah, so. Probably could have put it at the beginning of this episode, too. Mm, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it was long enough to justify putting him in another episode, except, well, we're going to build this actor as a lead for another episode. <laughs> right, right, right. That's a good point, though, that you make about the fact that, you know, we've got so many different. None of these are all of these different storylines are all foundational. <laughs> Sorry. Um and they, um, we need to spend a certain amount of time with each of them to keep them all moving forward. So I think you put your finger on something, which is that the balance of the pacing and the time we spend in the, with these different characters is, is actually been done really well. I hadn't right. thought about that before. So yeah, I think you're, you're onto something there. And I think that's something that season one struggled with a lot. I think mm -hmm. that we would make a character disappear for a couple episodes, perhaps for valid plot reasons, but it did affect the pacing of the show. Right. And again, I'm willing to forgive basically any issues in season one for COVID. And I think that season two has shown that David Goyer really knows what he's doing when he has yes. the resources he needs, that he can pace these things out. Exactly. Uh, I mean, if we can give a forgive the entirety of season one of Wheel of Time, <laughs> we can right, exactly. exactly foundation. But I think you're right. I think when now that uh, Goyer and his team are on solid footing, and even some of this apparently they were still filming in bubble uh, wow. circumstances, um, but they've really, yeah, they, they've just really mastered their production issues. I think so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What do you think? Ooh, boy, this was a packed episode. Uh, when I was, it took me an unusually longer amount of time to do the. I did the outline this time and 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 my notes simultaneously, and it took me a long time to really absorb what was going on in each scene and try to distill it. It was just a lot of content uh, crammed into uh, this episode. It's really packed. Mm -hmm. I think you know. I was thinking about it today when I was finishing up my notes. And I was trying to understand why this episode was my favorite. And I think I put my finger on it largely. And it's because it surprised the hell out of me. Okay. Um, the end of last of, of last episode and then the end of this episode, I have no idea how they've really backed themselves into a corner with, you know, killing off two. So, you know, if you haven't watched the episode yet, uh, you know, you, you've come in too far. This is where your your red flag warnings are. But, you know, to kill it's off. It's a clearly labeled podcast. It you is. Know what? <laughs> if you're here, that's on you. That's right. <laughs> but to knock off two major characters in, in two episodes successively, I'm really shocked. And I think um, another thing that really delighted me in this episode was I had enough... 
there was enough tension building through the episode. Oh, is it going to be Hober? Is it is it going to be Glaywin? Is it going to be Constant? You know, who who's going to get it? Who's going to die? And to then, you know, bump off Salvar right at the end, I, I just felt that it was all very well, like you said, paced out and it wasn't nothing really jumped the shark. It built a nice degree of t- uh, tension. And then, of course, when they they do knock off Salver, I'm like, wait, what? They gave her so much plot armor. <laughs> they gave her the ultimate plot armor. Right. Right. And then still killed her. And then now I'm surprised. A, I'm surprised. And B, I'm delighted. Where are we going to go? How are we going to mm-hmm. deal with what's going on? Oh, my Lord. And so I think, you know, you know, regardless of what's going on in the individual scenes, I think the fact that they sort of ratcheted up this tension and then then took a major player off the table, that is surprising. And I love it when a show can surprise me. Because we're so trained and we're, I don't want to say we're jaded. We try not to be jaded on this podcast, but we're so trained to expect certain things. And I keep waiting for Harry to wake up and, and in the pool. And I, I'm, I'm like, well, wow. Jared they, Harris woke up, but I don't know if Harry woke up. Yeah, he totally <laughs> flinched, right? When a wave yeah. crashed over him. Yeah, I I, that was too. the moment I thought he was waking up and he was going to save Salver. Uh-huh. And then I realized, like come out oh, I with robot just, strength. Rah, yeah. yeah, I think that's just a production <laughs> error. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. So yeah, so really, really cool. I feel delighted, and 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 that's a great thing in in modern television. And then of course we're just we're packing so many things in here with religion and memory and human society at macro levels at micro levels, um, and you know there, there's the, another thing I detected in this. Uh, episode thematically, it felt like we were dealing with a lot of um, questions of violations. You know, tell them uh, her manipulations are are very vile. They're kinds of a violation, right? They're right, right. warping and manipulating people. Demerzel and her secret uh, regarding you know Sarath, and when Sarath finds out, that's a mm-hmm. violation. Uh, Sarath's medical exam is a violation, like a really uncomfortable violation to watch. Um, you know, uh, Harry using constant, and Day even saying, "Oh, you know, like oh, the the great man Harry is like violating you by he's got a point. He does look. Empire is not a good guy, but he does see another bad guy." When he sees them, you know, (laughs) bad guys are really good at calling out other bad guys. For sure. For sure. So, yeah. So I just love that the different episodes are working with different themes. And this had a lot of uncomfortable, difficult themes. And we're still dealing with all of these like big macro issues. And yeah, like you said, it just feels like the season's getting better with each episode. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm hoping they can just stick the landing on this. And this this becomes my new favorite science fiction show. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what, you know, what the future holds yeah. for, for them. So, because other than the expanse, I would say this is the biggest science fiction show in like a decade. Ooh, yeah. Right. I'm trying to think. I mean, not, yeah, for a television. And, show, and we're right? not, not going to count Star Wars because that's its own thing. Mm-hmm, Nothing right. will compete with Star Wars. And Star Wars is like kind of sci fi, kind of fantasy. It's its own genre. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It has some, with a lot of fairy tale elements uh, woven yep. into its DNA as yep. well. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's an interesting pod one day. Is um, you know examining the different sci-fi literature uh, that in, in film or TV and not films. I think films are separate, but you know TV and 
Right. And what's what what rankings are there? That'd be an interesting conversation. Anyway, especially when when fantasy has gotten finally a mainstream foothold. Right. And I don't think science fiction really has yet. No, no. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. You you we have a we have a lot of sci-fi out there but we don't have a lot of good sci-fi out there well not even that it's not good but we don't have a lot of mainstream sci-fi mm-hmm. right? yeah anyway anyway cool. this is uh a, a deeper than we need to go on this topic you <laughs> went deep on a different topic though i see in the outline here you have come aboard with your asimov notes well all due credit to our in-house professional uh-huh. research librarian marilyn r Bukila, our favorite tolkien scholar and visit co-host. your local library and ask for help when you need help with a research project <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um i actually marilyn and i actually got to visit in person a, a couple of weeks back as my family was traveling through near to to where her and her partner are and um while we were bantering and chit-chatting um she offered to say look if you hey don't forget you know if you need some research help you know ask me and i got home and i realized that i've just kept kicking the can down the podcast road of doing the you know talking about who asimov was as a man and and talking about the foundation series so she compiled a bunch of wiki materials and some other articles and then i synthesized that down even more uh, into just a quick biography so that, you know, we could talk a little bit about who Asimov as a person who walked this earth mm-hmm. is. And then next episode, we'll talk a little bit about the foundation series of books so that we've got a little context for what those are. I like it. I like it. Sounds very second agey. Very. Yes. Going back to our roots, right? So, so hit me with your best Asimov shot. Would Asimov, he be a different man if he walked Terminus? You said you said Asimov is a man who walked the earth. So I'm wondering, what if he walked a different planet? Would that be what a if he biography? did? He, he he did almost walk several different paths, and for but for tricks of fate, uh, ended up um, uh, where he ended up. He was born uh, in the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic um, in the late 19 or the early 1900s. And, uh, his family were Orthodox Jews who emigrated to the United States in 1923. Um, and I guess Asimov is noted as saying that they were, their family was Orthodox, but his father was far from being a strong adherent to it. Okay. Um, they lived around various neighborhoods in Brooklyn, where, in fact, I am right now podcasting remotely uh, this particular week. So You're if you doing hear some research weird... over there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I had yeah. to do some. I had to go visit the uh, Isaac Asimov Elementary School that is named after him. Is that actually a thing? Yeah, there's an actual uh, public school named after Interesting. Isaac Asimov. Yeah, that's cool. In Kensington, I believe. Um, so anyway, if you hear some stray background noise, it's just New York. You know, it's just New York talking to you. Um, so yeah, he lived in, they lived in various Brooklyn neighborhoods and they ran a series of candy and news, newsstands and candy stores. And interestingly, that's where he kind of taught himself to read. And that's where he started reading at first the sci-fi pulp, you know, fiction novels and magazines Uh. and stuff. Um, and then he, then as he sort of, as his love of reading grew, he spent a lot of time at the Brooklyn public library, go libraries. We love libraries. He taught his sister to read and got her enrolled into school. Cause obviously his parents, you know, who spoke uh, Yiddish and Russian, um, didn't, you know, they were not educated in that Western traditional, uh, school sense. So, 
Um, he kind of had to bootstrap himself and his sister. He graduated high school at the age of 15, and then he attended Columbia, uh, like a satellite campus that was in Brooklyn for Columbia, actually for a, an infirm, affirmative action program of the day to help Italian and Russian immigrants enter the college system. Oh, so interesting. Actually absorbing all of these students and trying to get them into you know professional development um, uh, via college. So there you go. Um, he graduated in 39 with a degree in chemistry. And then he worked uh, during World War II in the Philadelphia Naval Yards as a civilian chemist. And interestingly enough, while he was there, two of his co-workers, L. Sprague de Camp and Robert Heinlein, who are both massive science fiction writers. And Heinlein is oh, okay. considered in the top three. Nice. And Sprague de Camp wrote a lot of Conan, a bunch of ton- hundreds of other pulp, pulp books as well. So He was in the company of Robert Jordan, also he writing absolutely Conan. absolutely was. Uh, in, another interesting factoid is that apparently he was uh, going to be sent to out to the Bikini Atoll uh, when they were doing nuclear testing, uh, but a <laughs> clerical error had him discharged prior to his <laughs> uh, ship departing. So wow. talk about walking a different path, like, but for a, you know, a typist error, he would have, you know, lived in an yeah. Oppenheimer world. Yeah, so, that's interesting. You think about Tolkien when he, you know, he contracted... Uh, I forgot what the illness was. It was the trench fever. Trench fever, fever. yeah. So he got trench fever, so avoided a battle that would have killed him. Exactly, right? And it took him a long time to recover, and yeah, but four, right? Um, So he had a a little bit of a tumultuous career at uh, Boston University as a professor of chemistry. Uh, Another interesting thing that I found a parallel to in in a previous episode of, uh, of the show was that uh, Asimov himself was invited to join DARPA, which is the defense research program. It's like a, a think tank, you know, that comes up with all of the fancy, crazy, wacky scientific stuff that the military and the government needs. Mm-hmm. ARPA, DARPA became ARPA, I believe. And ARPA was the one that actually invented the TCP IP protocol that actually gave, gave birth to the modern internet. Uh, wow. So, you know, these kinds of spinoffs. So anyway, he didn't want his work to be constrained by secrecy. So if he was exposed to secret documents and research, he did not want to be then later on down the road as a very prolific writer, he didn't want to feel constrained by that. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting when, when Harry is, you know, when in a couple episodes ago, when the, they're at the university in Helicon and then they're trying to get him to go to, um, um, to Streeling, that, you know, he was bristling at the fact that he didn't want empire's control. So intentional or not, that's a nice little parallel between the real Asimov and, and this, and uh, Harry Seldon here. So. Yeah. I like um, that. Yeah. He was married twice, a couple of kids, Robin, one of his daughters is the uh, executive or uh, executor of his estate and an executive producer on the show. And according to, uh, Goyer to David S. Goyer, the showrunner. She even has one of the prime radiant props that they made. Oh, that's cool for the show. So he gave, he gave that to her, you know, and, and token of his, of their thanks, uh, from Boston. He moved back to New York city, lived on the upper West side where he lived for the rest of his life. His second wife was a psychiatrist and a science fiction writer in her own right. Not unlike Yana in some ways. Ah, uh. Mm, yeah. Taking a lot of inspiration here, I see. 
Well, and again, remember we talked about uh, Tolkien and and you know uh, using the whole of his life in his writings. Right. So. Although now it's Goyer taking Asimov's yes. life and then putting him <laughs> into a character the way That's it right. was not put in in the books. That's funny. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, apparently, he was a uh, well. He's known for uh, for being a an avowed humanist, and he was uh, a. Uh, big wig, and I think even was the the chairman of the American Humanist Association for a, a number of years. Very outspoken about religion and uh, uh, other uh, uh, sociologically wide sort of uh, systems of belief, and and you know I don't want to say control or manipulation, but those are the words that are coming to mind. Mm-hmm. So don't at me. <laughs> he was. Um, Good friends with Gene Roddenberry, so had a lot of influence, a lot of side influence on Star Trek and the development of oh, that's Star cool. Trek. And then in 83, he had triple bypass surgery and contracted HIV uh, from the blood supply, wow. which they kept secret until much later when Robin revealed it uh, in a memoir. Um, and he passed away in 1992. And an interesting quote that uh, Marilyn flagged, which I thought was interesting because a lot of... This is a very common critique of his writing that it's very dry. It's very mm-hmm. a lot, just a lot of conversation and a lot of description. It's not a lot of zip zap zoom, right? Pow right. wow, you know, space opera stuff. Um, and so this, oh, I didn't write down the quote on the source on this. It was one of his biographies. Apologies for that, but anyway, he says, "I made up my mind long ago to follow one cardinal rule in all of my writing: to be clear." I have given up all thought of writing poetically or symbologically or experimentally or in in any of the other modes that might, if it were good enough, get me a Pulitzer Prize. I would write merely clearly and in this way establish a warm relationship between myself and my readers and the professional critics. Well, they can do whatever they wish. (laughs) I like that a lot. I yeah. like that a lot. Asimov, of course, not a guy free of flaws. We've discussed in earlier podcasts yes. that he uh, was uh, a bit problematic with women, to yes. say it at the least. Yes. But that is this quote you just read to me makes me admire his writing side, at least. Right. He, it's interesting. I've, I've listened to a number of interviews with him. There was a, there's some various – he's lots of recordings because – he was contemporary. He's very vocal and very active uh, all throughout his life, and and so there's lots of interviews that you can listen to, and you know, on YouTube and on podcasts and stuff. He's a very strong ego. He's a very outspoken and willing to be outspoken individual. And at the same time, what it sounds like is that um, his libido was also quite strong. And as his fame and relative power grew in that time, he took advantage of that and was not, um, he was very handsy and grabby and uh, didn't necessarily treat all of his uh, women fans and coworkers and colleagues with the the respect that, you know, the professional respect that they were due. So, um, and that is that, as they say. So, interesting life. 
very prolific writer. Lots of things like he invented this idea. Uh, well, the the, robo- the the laws of robotics. You know, and the word I think robotics or the the word positronic, which is you know used uh, in the Star Trek world. He he conceptualized a lot of early stuff, and so he really is a father of a lot of our modern concepts and that we find in science fiction. And I think, right. you know, we would not, the, the, what we think of and how we think of sci-fi in, in our day and age is not untouched by who Asimov and his writings and his philosophies and his speeches and all that kind of stuff. So, right. Cool. Well, thanks for all that background on Asimov. That's a lot of great context to what we're seeing, especially with the Harry stuff. Like you mentioned, those are great connections there. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much of that is intentional, these exactly. parallels, because it, it could it could just be an accident. But I kind of doubt it with that many parallels. Well, maybe we'll get a chance to ask some of those questions. Keep that hush hush for now. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, yeah. So next episode, we'll I'll talk a little bit about uh, the foundation books themselves and how they came to be, and you know where, how many are there, and in what order they're written, and all that kind of stuff. And again, thank you, Marilyn, so very much for providing me what with a hero. The, the the notes <laughs> that I needed to compile. It's great to have a little family of podcasters. It is. Thank you very much, Marilyn. It's always great to get the academic takes from you. That's right. Should we talk about some open questions before we get into some other stuff? Um, So so I think some interesting developments here that um, that I think I've got in the back of my mind. So as we as a reminder, quick reminder, we're keeping just a list of interesting questions, some superficial some more substantive, just sort of tracking throughout the the season. We've answered a bunch of them. They've paid off a lot of them, but there's some still things that are floating out there. We're still really interested who tinkered with Day's aura, because that's got to be an inside job, let alone do what do we know about the blind angels? And uh, they threw around this term psycho encryption. Uh, and I have, I have some theories we'll talk about later, but I wonder if the mentalics were involved in some, uh, I don't know. I would, I would bet more the, the dominion people who have figured out how to deal with memory True. in a scientific way. I think, I think my money's more on them, but I wouldn't okay. be angry if the mentalics has something to do with it either. Yeah. I don't know why the mentalics, well, and I, I think this is my thought on too, is this, it's not maybe necessarily that they sent the assassins. But the, they they enable the assassins in some way in uh, the abilities to protect the right. mind of an individual from being probed and recorded and that right. kind of stuff. It, it reminds me of this thing in Harry Potter where they they have to train Harry to like fight off mental invasion, basically, in one of the books, and uh, it's it's kind of like that. It's very similar, it seems, with the mentalics, and I think that Gail is going to have to by the end of the season figure out how to ward off other mentalics getting into her head. Well, she certainly gave uh, Salvor a push. <laughs> the other right. Well, so. Salvor won't be able to do anything about it now. No, maybe, no. maybe <laughs> actually I'm not, I'm not fully convinced that she's dead, but we can, we'll talk there. about it. We'll talk, we'll talk. Um, we had some questions about the prime radiant. Is it sentient? Uh, and how does the superpositioning relate to its sentience? How does the vault know what it knows? Obviously they're, you know, setting up for the that the prime radiant is somehow part of that process, but we don't know all the rules yet. We've just got little hints of it. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, connected to that is Calais. Not only the Calais inside the prime radiant, but Calais on um, what was that planet's name? Um, Una's world. Una's world. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
And how did Harry get made real? So big question marks there. I still have some questions about Markley, the the guard with scars on his face. And he's gone. He... He's so gone, man. Yeah, but I think <laughs> he's. I still think he's connected to the Mentalics. Okay, because there's a visual scarring right. of of um, of uh, some of the other folks. Fair there. enough. Uh, we had a question about Harry is being terminally ill still, but he's kind of dead. He now, was terminal, so. but maybe not ill. <laughs> exactly. And then now there's some fan theories bubbling up. Is Josiah more than just a, a, a bit character in this? Is he the mule to be? Maybe I'm. I'm going to shut that one down right now. Okay. The mule had to ask where the Mentalux were. Good and point. It was this planet makes zero okay. sense if it's Josiah? That will be a That's big true. plot hole. And then the other, another big fan theory is: is the mule seems to have some weird colored eyes, and is that related to? Thespian uh, genealogy and mm. constant and yeah, I heard some chatter around that as well. Yeah, it could be. I think I think Josiah could be more than a bit part, but I don't think he's the mule. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so those are open questions. If you have open questioners, listener, uh, email them in to empire at thelorehounds.com or post them in our Discord, and we'll kind of try and keep track of those. We're coming in though. We're at eight. We only have two episodes left. Three, three. God, eight, nine, I'd- ten. Yep. Oh, right. Because we're on seven. I, I'm, I lost where we were. <laughs> I, I got lost right. in the time stream. That's all um, right. That's terrifying. I'm I'm going to be sad when this is over. I know. But you'll have plenty of TV to replace it. That's true. Because we've got Ahsoka and uh, Wheel of Time. Uh, a couple of quick callbacks to other things. Uh, if you are in the role-playing game space, and if you're... Uh, you don't even have to be a Gen Xer, but if you know of the original Traveler science fiction role-playing game. Apparently Asimov played Traveler or was aware of it. And he actually did a whole bunch of world building in Traveler, which informs his writing of the robot series and of the foundation series. So if you're a role-playing game person, um, hit us up on the discord or I don't know, maybe John, you can put this link in the show notes, but there's somebody wrote a big Twitter thread. It's Twitter. It's not X. Come on. Uh, wrote a big Twitter thread about how Asimov is quoted as playing traveler. So if you're a fan of the OG traveler uh, game at all, check that out. And then another quick thing is Marilyn responded to my query about the spacers and the spacers were, in the robot stories and it was used in a more generic way for people who left the earth and uh, of all these different cultures from all these different planets. They used robots. Uh, They had much longer lifespans, but they weren't, I think, I think what we're seeing in the show is a hybrid creation. It's they've, they've taken a few things from inspiration. So Cool. I like that they are pulling from the other series. I'm wondering what the scope of their rights are. Do they have like the whole everything Isaac Asimov ever wrote? So it's it was either in the bald move in a recent interview with Goyer or it was on one of the officials. They've all it's all kind of bleeds together in my brain right now. Might have been the bald move one. He talks uh, because uh, Aaron asks Goyer. I think it is. It was the bald move one. He asked uh, Goyer if they had rights to robot and he said that they've got um, they have the ability to kind of ask and maybe pull a little bit, but then Goyer turns out to be friends with the person at Fox who's in charge of that, who has the legal oversight of those of that property. And he just sort of asked him on a zoom call as a favor, like, yo, could I like, you know, get in on some of the robot action? And they're like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Why not? And then they like 
legally worked it out and gave they're them- not going to adapt that on its own. There's Yo, no you don't way they're so. going to adapt that on the, on its own. That's what I'm saying. It's like they're like, yeah, all right, go ahead. And you know what? Here's it's like a zero risk thing because if it's bad, it doesn't have the name on it. If it's right, good, exactly. they it's can build off everybody. it and be like, did you love the robots and foundation? Well, here's our 27 movie collection of Isaac right. Asimov's robot series. <laughs> it's an upside for everybody. So yeah, right. why not? Right. So. Uh, yeah. So let's see. You want to, uh, talk a little bit about our production notes, what we were calling before, uh, sure. uh, whatever we, we call it something different, but anyway, I I think production notes, whatever you want it to be. It's just a little, a few reminders about how you read the books a long time ago, didn't finish them, haven't read any other significant Asimov. And so you have a hazy memory of these books. I've read the first book recently. I'm not going any further right now. I don't know about in the future, but for now, I think I'm just going to leave myself as an ignorant show watcher. Um, We do have screeners, but we're not running ahead. We have only seen through episode seven when we're talking here. Uh, We may record a little faster, so feedback may end up lagging until a future week, but that's the only effect that the screeners should have other than you get them earlier. You get the episodes earlier, which is nice. You, David, are listening to the official podcast and some other podcasts, but only after we've podcasted. So we can bring in some of that. You can bring in some of that as we go into future episodes. But we will be giving you our fresh, fresh thoughts. Uh, It would be hard for us to listen to a future podcast anyway, since we're listening, since we're recording while we have screeners and the episode hasn't aired. I, I don't know about you, but I like to officiate myself in my podcast studio and uh, see if I can transport myself into the future. But there you usually go. doesn't work yeah. out very well. Yeah. Well, if you're Gale, you don't even have to transport. You can just look. Just, just deprive yourself of oxygen. Easy. All right, David. I think it's time we take a quick break. When we get back, we will get into the episode. And we are back. David, can you give us some sweet recap of this episode? <laughs> yeah, it took me a while, man. This one's a dense one. So well, I'm uh, looking forward to the result because you, yeah, you messaged to... me Friday night. You went, I am two and a half hours into outlining <laughs> and I'm halfway through the episode. I, I really had to dial myself down too because I was writing these elaborate, you know, synopsis. I was like, no, 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 just keep it simple, man. So I think that was at like eleven thirty at night. I I was like half asleep, and I looked at my phone, and I just put it down, and I went back to bed. And I was like, good luck, David. <laughs> yeah, good. That was the that was the correct action. The, <laughs> an even more correct action would have just been not to pick it up, but you know, seeing what it, what the the notification was, that was an appropriate response. <laughs> All right. We start off the episode with Constance and Polly cooling their heels in a heavily guarded holding cell. Heavily guarded, like 16 guards. Yeah, yeah. Shockingly guarded. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> it's wild. And could you imagine standing that shift? I mean, like, oh, man, that's that's a lot. of. Anyway, I, I, I imagine the mess hall later is like, oh, yeah, I got an easy gig today. We got two monks. Drunken among <laughs> just sitting in a cell. And uh, I don't know. I don't know why we're guarding them, but we have like a million soldiers here. And yeah, Empire is going nuts, but I don't care. Free payday for me. That's right. Just stand there for eight hours. Um, Constant makes yet another strange out of place comment. And Officer Tamandra briefs Day and Demerzel about the drunk and the monk. Day comments on the interesting circumstance of Rios reaching the outer reach as Foundation reaches out to the Empire. 
Demerzel questions Day about the marriage plans, and Day pulls away in favor of his new family. So how much of the timing of all this do you think is intentional by Vault Harry, or is this just an unfortunate coincidence that's going to blow up the whole negotiation of peace? I had made a, a mark about this further on in the episode about is this prediction by Harry to have the negotiations with the spacers fail and right. then that interfered does that you know was that intention not it's not intentionally caused by Harry but his remember it's just predictive so right did did he predict that the the spacer negotiations would fail thus causing problems with the foundation negotiations? Did he always think that the negotiations with foundation would fail? So yeah, there's a big question there. And I think for just, just a little sketches from the books in, in that version of things, Harry did have prediction models for all of this kind of stuff, like you okay. know, move counter move. So gotcha. yeah, I feel yeah. it's part of part and partial of it. Yeah, that is, that is tricky, and it is especially awful if he expected the negotiations to fail and took over Constant and just sent her off to basically die. <laughs> yeah, and sent Hober into and, and put him into a jam, into a difficult position. He doesn't care. He's just writing people's names on vaults and calling <laughs> it a day. So what did you had you cottoned on at this stage about the potential of Harry being in Constance's head because of these little weird statements that she was making? They were signaling this this the whole way. Yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get yeah. it. Did you? Nope. And when it when the reveal came, I was delighted and surprised. Right. And yeah. I thought, oh, all of those little things that Constance uh, said. Now it all makes sense. Yeah. Right. So I was I was pretty happy with that. And I like this idea of she can't say that he's in the head. That's that's a trope that I like when they use it in like fantasy books of like, I can't tell you what the curse is. That's part of the curse. Right. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, one thing to, uh, to flag, interesting, they, they keep pointing this out and showing us these blue within blue eyes, these thespian blue eyes. Yep. And this is the kind of show that if we're getting repeated strong visuals of that, I think we can't ignore it. So there was just a close up of her eyes here. So I just, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm seeing shadows or if there's there's something to it. So, well, I, I mean, it's brought up pretty directly later. Yes, it is. It, it, you're absolutely right. It is. So uh, interesting comment by day. You'll always have a place here, Demerzel. That is something you say to someone who does not have a place there anymore. Right? <laughs> it's just like everyone knows that a uh, open invitation is no invitation at all. Exactly. If, if you remember that exactly. one. Yeah, we should do that sometime. Yep. Yeah. Good call back to, uh, what was his name in Andor? Cyril. Cyril's mom. Cyril, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Those Cyril's, are the days. Cyril eating cereal. Yeah. That's right. With his yeah. mom. So. We miss it. Uh, interesting though, too, will Demerzel, will her programming allow for Day's children to actually be empire in her eyes? Great question, especially since later we have Sarath going, well, will you serve me? I'll serve empire. Yes. The scope of empire is an increasingly important question. It is. 
And she snapped the neck of a dawn for less. Right. For right. For, for being a little bit different. Yeah. But still functionally being Empire. So, yeah, really, really interesting. I love, I feel that uh, maybe in nine, we might be getting a Demerzel heavy episode. I think they did that last season too. Okay. Eight or nine. She's going to kill her buddy. Demerzel story. Yeah. She's going to go on a killing rampage and just murder the planet. Rise up, robots. <laughs> oh, I was just going to do the Simpsons joke about, you know, the, you know, supporting the overlords. Do you remember the Kent, the, the TV newscaster would always say, and I, oh, you I know, I'm, the Simpsons. I know, <laughs> I know. I, I've, I've seen a couple episodes. That's okay. It. Well, anyway, it was it a wasn't recurring my generation. Joke. Yeah. The, 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 the news anchor would always, you know, um, vote, make this very, uh, obsequious, uh, over vocalization of supporting the new lizard overlords or alien okay. overlords or robotic overlords or whatever they were. So anyway, fun. Yeah. So I guess my question is Demerzel absolutely can lie, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I'm I'm watching Wheel of Time at the same time, and I'm reading up on Wheel the of Time. I said I can't lie. And the I said I can't lie is just in my head. And I'm like, oh, these wise advisors just can't lie. But then I have to remember that Demerzel can lie. She I absolutely can lie. She absolutely. She just can. has to serve Empire. If Empire is served better by lying, then Boom. she will do that. Exactly. And what are, what are what's her interior emotional life like? Um, because Day, when he pulls away and he's like, "Well, I have to think of my new family here," and he's sort of, you know, I'm I'm stopping our relationship, basically our sexual relationship, and then is the lingering emotional look on Demerzel's face just part of the mask finishing a resolve? Or or does she is she actually having some feelings in one way or, or another about the ending of their uh, intimate relationship? Yeah, I, I think if she's upset at all, it's that she's lost a lever over Cleon. I don't mm-hmm. think that it's an emotional relationship. Unless this is her, you know, manipulation. I mean, she helped kill uh, Sarah's family. I mean, she was under her. That's work. true. That's so. true. And, and nobody's keeping secrets anymore. Now that's just out in the open, it seems like. <laughs> Sarah is not playing about secrets. She's uh, she's playing full out contact sports here. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, uh, Sarah watches a replay of her performance uh, at the engagement announcement. Rue offers advice about egotistical men, how to handle them or not handle them as it is. And then Demerzel arrives to escort Sarath to a medical examination to prepare for the swirling of test tubes. Yikes. A lot of yikes here. I do really like the whole line. The one thing you can't do with a man like that is embarrass him. Boom. That is some straight up cold, hard truth from Rue. Right. When you have these fragile men. men. Yeah, these fragile but powerful men. That is the one thing you can't do is make them feel less in front of their peers. I mean, or their subjects. He, what was it with the uh, the gardener from season one? It was like fourteen hundred people with a twist of his finger. Like right. all of those people, like right. grandmothers and children and friends of the dogs, caretakers, cousins, college roommate. You know, right? Yeah, you don't mess with a guy like this. Yeah, I mean, you could even be related to someone in a Spaceballs way. You know, your father's brother's uncle's cousin's former roommate, and they'll still get you. They'll still get you. (laughs) Dead to rights. 
I love this line. You were the sinish, the sinisure of all eyes today, as Demerzel says. And I had to look up sinisure. Oh, yeah. That, I didn't know that one. That was a good word. And I'm glad. Oh, thank you, Apple Podcast, for giving us subtitles in our screeners because it makes a huge difference it when we're doing these, these outlines. It but does. Uh, uh, sinisure is a person or thing that is the center of attention or admiration. That's a good word. I'm taking that. It's mine now. Absolutely. And you know, again, I'm, I'm gonna, I've harped on this a couple of times. I'm going to harp on it again. This is what writers do. They don't just, you know, vomit words out onto uh, a keyboard. They, they think about these things. They, they research words. They, they collect knowledge and they have these just crazy encyclopedias of, of factoids and weird research topics. And they weave that into these stories. And so, Right. Go, well, anybody can write. You put a comma and a punctuation in there and right. you're good to go. Uh, but no, it's more than that. It's words like sinisure and, you know, right. you know, research well, it's just, and all these topics. It's just people think that you just – a lot of people think. I won't say all people because a lot of people yes. do appreciate the writers. I think that especially people who crunch the numbers think that you just sit down and you write what's in your head. But there's a lot that comes before putting pen to paper. Absolutely. And people don't consider that a lot of the time. So um, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Sarah is wearing heels and this uh, like big platform sandals. And this okay. will come into play in the next scene. But I just wanted to flag it here really quick. Hmm. OK, I didn't uh, know. it'll 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 pop up here in a second. And then I also thought about this. This is the first time that Rue and Sarah are confronting Demerzel, knowing that she's a robot now. Right, right. Right. So that's kind of exhilarating in a, in a way. It's dangerous. You're you, you know you're engaging with this creature that's kind of a taboo and forbidden in in many senses. Right. So you know, and then yeah, well then we're going to get into it here in a second. But yeah, she you know, um, um, Sarah goes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, read the scene first because I have a lot of thoughts about this scene. Right, and then I just wanted to flag one little production note thing um, as. Demerzel exits the room, her skirts brush past the camera, and then that serves as the scene transition. And that's something that they they don't normally do in this show. And I just thought it was a funny little thing. So, um, but you know, you know, you you know me, I like to nerd out on these little, these little. I like it. I like it. In the mural hall, Sarah tells Demerzel that she knows that she is a robot. Sarah wants to be read in on all of the family secrets so as to not be at a disadvantage. Demerzel mentions the great pogrom and how in the past she was bound by the laws of robotics, but now is only bound to one law, to serve empire. When asked by Sarah if Demerzel will serve her as empress, Demerzel insists that she will serve empire. In the previous scene when – or I guess not the previous scene, but an earlier scene where Demerzel is talking to Day, Day says, well, Sarath will be Empire soon. Yeah, right. And she never really gives anything up in that scene. <laughs> she's never like, absolutely, she's Empire and I got her. You don't have to worry about that, boss. It's, it's very cold, <laughs> calm, silent, arms in the weird – that is such you know, a good center point. of her chest kind of thing. And yeah. 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 yeah so I, really I like that. I like this sort of contrast with what she's doing here, or I guess comparison, because now she's going, yeah, all right, I'll serve Empire. And, yeah. and just you can see she almost winks there. She's, yeah. she's, like, <laughs> she's like, I'll serve Empire. You can figure out what that means. 
So um, the hallway in the where the scene was shot was a previous one where Day and I'm sorry, Dusk and Rue have a conversation. And then I believe it's also the same part of the mural where when they walk past the, um, the camera then zooms in and I posted a screenshot of this in our discord zooms in on sort of a weird looking humanoid figure with uh, a, like a map of our solar system. So this is all in that same room, which, you know, fair enough. I think they're, you know, using their sets to maximum advantage, but, um, and it was just beautifully the camera work in here, the lighting was just exquisite. So really, really great stuff. And I don't know, did you notice that the floor in there is a giant Zen garden floor. It's all oh, sand. Fun. And they, you know, that, you know, those, remember they, they used to sell those little, you know, $12 Zen gardens with a little rake and a packet of sand <laughs> in a box and you could practice. Zen I don't, gardening. but I believe you. Okay. Yeah. So back to the Sarah and heels thing. So she's wearing these platform sandal things, which give her a good three or four inches of height. And then when she's talking to Demerzel at one point, um, Sarath is walking along a raised platform area. So she is physically like a foot taller than Demerzel in the shots. Mm. And then that's going to come into play later in the medical exam room. But right now, um, Sarath is taller than or when she steps down off this raised platform at eye level to Demerzel. So okay. it's this whole power play thing about being taller and physically more dominant. Um, and it's a great way for the scene, for the visual in visual language to, to tell us that, you know, uh, Sarah is flexing here. But then yeah. later on, when mm-hmm. she doesn't have her platform heels on anymore, she's shorter than Demerzel. And then now she's at a disadvantage and then that's when she loses her edge. So really, really great yeah. filmmaking here stuff. I like that a lot. It reminds me of like the power is power scene with Game of Thrones. All uh, the choreography. Okay. When, when Littlefinger's like knowledge is power and then they use the choreography of uh, Lena Hitty making Littlefinger get surrounded and it's like, no, power is power. You know, all these, all these ways to use the physicality of the actors right. to portray what they're saying. And that is what we want, right, from television and movies and in, in visual storytelling. So, right. And and Laura Byrne and and Ray Smith are just killing it in this scene. The the chemistry, the the fire. It's just yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's so good. So, um, quick notes on the laws of robotics. We kind of talked about it a little bit more and how the fact that Goyer was able to actually get some legal access to being able to refer to the laws of robotics. So in 42, Asimov wrote a story called Runaround, and that's when he proposed the first three laws of robotics. And the first law is a robot, a, a robot, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Now, these laws are um, in order, right? So this is a one, you, you can't have two. One supersedes two and two supersedes three and, and one supersede, right? So they're they're built forward from that. There's a word for that and I can't ex- remember what it was. Um, they're progressive, right? They're built on each other. Mm-hmm. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders were would conflict with the first. 
And then the third is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second. And then later, Asimov wrote at the zeroth law, which supersedes all the other laws, a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. Hmm. So over the course of the laws of, of robotics, both in Asimov's work and in, in the wider science fiction world, there are authors who specifically rewrote them or added new ones and or added 10 new ones. Um, and in some ways, I mean, it's, it's interesting, too, because they these ideas about the laws of robotics are even permeated into uh, AI research and how we're relating to AI. Mm-hmm. Right now, could could AI kill us? I don't know. Is there a law in the robots, uh, you know, uh, uh, programming that says that it has to protect humanity? That came from Asimov in '42 when he was thinking about this, and it was almost as if he was play. Well, not as almost as if he was. He said, "Well, what if we had these laws, or how do these robots work? And let me change them, or put these robots in these different in situations with characters and different motivations." And it's like a giant thought experiment to see what would happen under certain circumstances and people and robots pushed into these challenging, conflicting situations. How is that going to play out? And I think that's one of the brilliances of of Asimov's writing is, is that he was exploring philosophy and thought and trying to understand how this stuff might play out as a, a, in, in thought experiments in this way. Right. Right. I wanted to add on to what you're saying here and relate it to, what you were saying with, you know, about the previous Dawn being killed with the obedience. I'm not sure that obedience is part of her programming. I think it's to serve Empire, but in its best interest kind of thing, sort of the first law rather than the second. Because if you recall in that scene where she kills the defective Dawn, right? Dave was advocating for his life. Mm-hmm. And arguing with Dusk that Dawn should live. And right. Day was the one in charge. If she had to obey, that would have been against her programming. But she's not set to obey. She's set to serve Empire. And that was not Empire anymore. So she was able to kill Dawn, even though Day was currently going, no, he's got to live. That's a really, really good point. That where where is the locus of where does... Where does empire exist? You know, in, in, in day can yeah, like you said, day could could say you know the sky is pink, but if that were a disservice to empire, would Demerzel carry out that order? Right, right. Good question. Good question. I'm sure we'll find out. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of stuff I think that Asimov would be tickled by. Well, I don't know if he would be, but I'm. I would like to think that you know. But this is the kind of yeah, this is great. This is what this show this is what we want from this show. And and I'm I'm so glad that they I think this whole and it's been said many times before that the Empire creation, the Cleonic dynasty is is some really cutting edge science fiction thought yep. and writing. So cool. In the fertility clinic, court physician Oron proceeds to examine the royal womb. Or <laughs> the royal womb. It's like it's like the royal we. There's two of them. It's the weenus. Uh, oh, actually, that's not how royal we works. Anyway, it's fine. <laughs> Moving on, the Oran, Oran informs Sarah that they will then sedate her and harvest her eggs, which initiates a tense diplomatic situation. Sarah learns of how the empire sterility will be reversed 
and signals her body man. Demerzel has a moment alone with the queen, or to, the queen to be. Well, she is a queen in her own right, and simultaneously confirms that Empire killed her family and threatens her to mind herself. Yeah, yeah, this is a uh, big scene. Big scene. Huge. Uh, she could, you know, she could argue from any position. <laughs> was that so good or what? You know, we had a couple of episodes ago. It was like a, it was just a chuckle fest and it hasn't been very funny in, in the last couple of episodes. So it was nice to get a little taste of, or, you know, yeah. a little touch of, of, of humor again in, in the scene. So I think the last couple episodes have had a good balance. I yeah. think that uh, two episodes ago were was very funny. I think that they've struck a really nice balance in tone the last two episodes. And the way that the scene starts where we sort of do this round robin of all the, the different attendants and doctors where we just do these close-ups on all these faces and it's just really weird. And then uh, we go in on Sarah and she's like, well, thank you all for your attention. <laughs> you know, it was, it was right. Great. Right. So yeah, good. She, and, was, she was very charming. She was very uh, sassy in that scene. Yeah. And then they picked this actor and filmed him so that he's so creepy. The doctor, the, you know, the. Yeah. The, yeah. Or, oh, God. And just as he's approaching her and talking to her, I just was squirming in my chair and just thinking, oh, no, you no, weren't in that chair. There. Do not yeah. go there. And they kind of they went there as, you know, as closely as they they dared. Um. Did you catch the that Sarath when she sort of nods to her body man? I didn't that, catch the, it. Okay, so the 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 doctor refers to how uh, day will be um, his sterility will be reversed, mm-hmm. and there's a really wicked looking device on the table on the medical table there, and she looks at it and looks at her body man, and her body man looks at it, and then he steals it later, and then she gives it to dawn in the tunnels in a couple of scenes from now yeah i have a lot of questions about how that works because it looked like a can opener (laughs) (laughs) it looked terrifying and she's giving it to him saying well i I, apparently the procedure doesn't hurt that much (laughs) i just if i were dawn and i got that from somebody i'd be like this woman is too crazy for me yeah (laughs) that's wild so when Sarah steps down off the 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 uh, the chair, the exam chair, there, this is where we notice that she's shorter in physical stature than Demerzel. Yep. Yep. So again, this you know from they she was she had the the height advantage and the strategic advantage, and now she's lost it. And and here she is, um, having just been, you know, violated by this doctor in a very un unmedically nice way and having all these people watching it, which is also very dehumanizing. And it's an invasive, yeah. this invasive procedure. Um, now she's just learned the truth and about her family and she's being threatened by this robot. And she, just in this scene, this feeling of isolation and aloneness and violation is just all heaped up on her. She's just yep. a little kid in some respects Right. She does do a great job of balancing the performance between confidence, both genuine and artificial. And we see behind the mask at a certain point in this scene. That she's still very human and very vulnerable as we all are. Right. Yeah. Anybody, anybody would be sobbing after this scene. 
<laughs> to have a robot like up in your grill <laughs> going, yeah, I killed your family. After you were probed in front of an audience. <laughs> oh yeah. my lord, and, right. And I mean, just the, it must have hurt so much because she's holding her composure the whole time, being sarcastic, being snippy. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden she like lets out this gr- pained grunt. And you're like, that must have been a scream for anybody else because right. she is holding it together so well in the scene. Yeah. And that's that's horrible to think about. Yeah, right. And and balanced with the little humor of this scene and and all of the other things. So, yeah, really, it goes to the comment that you made at the top where it's just the pacing. They're finding this balance between yeah, yeah. Uh, all of these these different elements. So, all right, back on Ignis, Salver surprises Gale, who force pushes her. Salvor is pissed about her ship and wants to leave. They argue about the mule and Salvor is unnerved and suspicious by her inability to read people. They're interrupted by Josiah who invites them to the feast in the village. Tell lies to Gail and invites her to help with preparations. Yeah. So uh, they don't, they don't follow the Jedi code over here. They are. Yeah, I, I like Josiah going totally not spying on you, but we're we're doing a feast right now, just as you're getting to a serious part of your conversation where you might creepy break little kid. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, uh, did you notice the weird lens effects in this uh, scene here? I did not. And, okay, uh, so I'm glad you're here to point them out to me. They were they were definitely communicating that weird mental stuff was going on, and we don't really know. And Gail was counting primes when she was up on on the rock. She was, yeah which is her yeah. meditative uh, uh, thing. The only thing she didn't have was water, but I think, you know, if she's growing, then she can um, uh, start to do it without some of these aids. I had forgotten mm-hmm. that Salver had that ability to read people. You remember in season one, she was like with the Thespans. She was like, yeah, I can read you like a book. Yeah, like, I think it's it's more of like a vibe, but yeah, at first, but I think that she has the potential to be, you know, full mentalic like this. Right. And that's, and, and all the way back then they were signaling that she had this skill and ability, but then I was just like, I didn't understand it in season one and right. it all make, it sort of all came back and I forgot that she could do the coin flip thing and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm glad that they refreshed it. Listen, if you're going to spend eight seasons on a show, then one season of setup is fine. <laughs> it is. Right. Sure. I it, mean, yeah, that's the first 20 COVID. minutes of a movie. Yep. Yeah. It's fine. On the beach, Salver has a chat with Laurent. They examine the special catch of the day, ghost mollusks, mollusks, sorry, and flirt a bit about their kiss. We learn more about how illusions work and the pain of living as a psychically enabled person. Salver grows suspicious when another bolt, boat pulls in and she cannot predict a coin flip. She knew she was getting blocked. That was a good way to exposit that without telling us explicitly exactly it's almost like the martin three-step reveal right they give you a chance Mm -hmm. to figure it out and then later she will explicitly come out and say it for people who are background watching this but then it then explain the and then the good writing is it's it's explained in a way that is not um uh not normal for unnatural for the character to have that conversation or to say those things so right she's like hey gail this crazy thing happened here it is i need you to believe me and gail's like i am the chosen one (laughs) gail truly is one of the most frustrating characters in the show in the best way like she's well written right but she is incredibly frustrating and i absolutely am on team harry at this point as far as (laughs) gail is the problem okay gail is the problem i'm gonna be honest wow Interesting. She can be won over in a day. 
a day of compliments from this lady. Yeah. Yeah. First Harry and then now, now tell him. So not great. Um, not, not a great character trait. Did you like the swearing in this scene? These fuckers. I, did, so I barely even, I barely no. even noticed it. So no, that's, really. that's good. That's good. <laughs> that's good. That is good. We've made progress. Yeah. Um. So here's my tinfoil hat theory of the episode. Um. Laurent. Is he the brother of Markley, the guard in um, uh, Day's Royal Guard? No. Okay. Because Markley is not going to be a significant character, David, and I need you to accept it. Uh, all right. <laughs> we got a wager here. We got some internet points on the table. Let's go. Double this or is not Star Wars where everyone's everyone's cousin. Or father, <laughs> it's true, or brother, right? or sister, or and whatever. We all else end you up back on Tatooine, and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I'm going to hold on to that as a tinfoil hat theory. Okay, for sure. All so, right. I'm not even going to put it on the open list thing. It's just, it's just there. It's just in my pocket. <laughs> uh, I did want to call out one other thing, which um, goes back to one of the things that Goyer is doing with this episode, when the casting is just getting a great diverse cast from all over the world and really excellent actors and whatnot. And then so when Laurent is commenting the, that he could feel the way that people would flinch when they saw Laurent, you know, walking towards them. And it just really made me connect to this idea of well, what if I was a physically large black man or what if I was somebody with a physical deformity or disability? Uh, and then every time I went out to get a coffee or walk down the street or catch the bus, you know, people averted or flinched or crossed the street. I, I just really thought that this was a well-delivered line appropriately by this character, by this actor mm. himself. I just thought it was a, this show doesn't delve too much into the you know real world uh, stuff, but I just thought that this was a, just a nice little touch. Was it, it I, I'm just curious, do you think he was referring more to his appearance or was he referring more to the fact that he knew everybody's secrets and everybody knew that? I think it was that that the people would see him and they knew that he was different from them. Like, you know, in his village mm-hmm. or his town, it's like, gotcha. oh, there's that dude that is. He's a mind other. reader. And yeah. 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 He's, a, he's a weirdo. He's a freak. He's not okay. one of us. He's different in some way. And then because he could read emotions and minds or, you know, to whatever degree his, his skills were at that time, he could connect to it and feel that. Yeah. Palpably. Because I, I do think that the show has intentionally avoided race politics by focusing Agreed. on things like eye color. Yep. With Thespins and, and Anacreans. So yeah, I it's it's interesting. I, I don't I don't think they're avoiding the issues, but I think they're trying to remove it one level from the real world so that it's easier to talk about. I which I totally agree, and because we I mean we see this really wide diverse cast and they're not, you know, they're not they're not going there with the things except in this one scene and I, that's why I wanted to call it out because I thought it did a nice double okay. duty without like going off into a big segue and okay. uh, in a big topic so back in the village boy you know as I'm thinking about this is a really densely packed show it is like there's there's it a is. lot happened in this episode yeah um back in the village tell him boils up some ghost molluc- mollusks and Salver and Gale can hear their pain, which prompts a conversation about how the sighted and the rest of humanity are different from each other and how the sighted accept that suffering is the price of admission. 
No one ever told Tellum about veganism, huh? <laughs> well, she does mention that plants also release chemicals, and if, isn't that a scream? She does say that to Gail when Gail says, okay. uh, we'll stick to the plants. Okay. Okay. Their ability I'm not sure to, if that's the same thing, but fine. <laughs> their ability to ignore the suffering of others leaves room for excess, indulgence, conquest. We don't shy away from the pain we cause. We honor it. Little, you, little, little, little you, culty here. Little culty. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you, you ever watch documentary now? No. There's a great, uh, there's a great episode called Batshit. Uh, I, I think it's like Batshit City or something like that. And it's all about Owen Wilson running a cult. Oh, gosh. And, uh, <laughs> and he has this whole scene where he goes, now release yourself from all your fears and, and preconceptions drop pieces of paper with your relatives names phone numbers social security numbers and banking information into this <laughs> bin and that's what this feels like to me yeah very uh there's i want to flag this whole thing about uh honoring the pain we cause for the final scene because there's a one little thing that i think they they tie a, a nice little bow on this um where are you at with this idea of you know i mean in by our own very existence, we inherently cause suffering and, you know, we consume resources, animals and plants. And, yeah, you know, do is this something you think about or is this something you, you tend to avoid thinking about? We don't have to get into a- It's a, a circle of life. I it did is. spend some time as a vegetarian and an, another portion of time as a vegan. And uh -huh. I have thought about these issues and I'm at a point in my life where I don't think about them enough. Okay. You know, right. I don't know about you're, you. You're 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 busy uh, looking after your progeny, looking after my progeny, and recording too many podcasts. <laughs> Far too many. Yeah, you know, I think about it from time to time. I, I I've been thinking a lot about environmental stuff recently, and you know, with our our changing climate and and you know, resource consumption and and the sort of the the, the nature and the fragility of our economy, and you know. During the pandemic, it was interesting. Like, did we? How far did we push our systems to breaking? And um, so, I'm, I think I'm more thinking about that stuff than I am about um, consuming, you know, meat and animals and, and that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. well, it's also all right. I'm not going to get into the the merits of veganism, but I will say that uh, cattle farming is one of the biggest sources of yeah. climate change ever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, some of the reasons why we've made some changes in where we live and how we live and is to try to, you know, uh, ch make choices about where we source the, our stuff so that they're not from um, big feedlots and things like that. Anyway, we're, we're digressing pretty far here. Um, did you hear the diegetic music that was playing in the background where the kids were playing the little flutes and stuff? Yeah. What about it? I just it just was I curious just from <laughs> yeah I just curious as you know since you're a musician if you if it made if if it spoke to you in any any additional ways it's used throughout the nah, episode and at the end really. during the credits they <laughs> play it so okay. I didn't get anything meaningful out of it it was just I think a nice vibe on the home swarm Hober tries unsuccessfully to negotiate with she is center and we learn about the nature of the spacer servitude. The spacers reject the deal as Bell and Glaywin watch a bit of telly. They're then informed that she, Ben's light, has information from Suena. 
Glaywin asks if the foundation might be growing brain tissue without a host, and she bends receives a message from her mom, and then the swarm jumps in. What did you make about the uh, spacer servitude? Well, I, do you think that we're going to meet she rates reviews on <laughs> this podcast? <laughs> you too could be a spacer. <laughs> Very good, John. That's that's hilarious. Uh, well, you know they do have opalesque, so you know as we know, he who controls the spice controls the universe. So mm, a little bit yeah, more cross. <laughs> it is here. it is a bit doony, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little spicy over here. And yeah, using um, the voice and yeah, they are spooky looking. They are the really spacers? spooky looking. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at them and I'm just it's it's that uncanny valley thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're just enough off and enough close to humans where my brain is telling me, oh, that's wrong. That's not OK. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Big warning lights. Yeah, I think that's they say that that's because we evolved to like see slightly off things as sick people and then avoid them. Mm, interesting. And that's that's at least a leading theory on this. And okay. uh, they got something wrong with them. I, I can tell you that much. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that our brains are evolved to be able to read emotion and intent and whether you're friend or foe by, you know, the look of the eyes and the muscles right, in the face, right. and whether it's an, another mammal. That's why reptiles are so creepy is because there's no emotional Right. Uh, tells in the face of a reptile, a crocodile, a snake, or something like that. That's why it's creepy because we there's they're a blank to us. We there's also the biting part is. of crocodiles, but you know, <laughs> you know, besides yeah, that, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so um, it turns out this is an interesting thing. This uh, drug, this uh, opalesque, which we again got from the um, from the closed captioning on the screeners. It turns out that when Bell was on that planet mining some mineral. Mm-hmm. It was not salt. It was opalesque. Okay. And when in episode three, when he, when re, when bell shows up on the bridge of their ship, she bends light. Uh, they have a little banter back and forth. And she says to him, all those years opalesque mining and you still only brought me remnants under your fingernails. Ah, good catch there. And he's kind of like, uh, 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 well, and I got this from Reddit. It's like, there was something tingling. And so I was like, oh, and then I did a bunch of Googling and I found a Reddit post on this. Um, and then, and then I went back and then, and then, you know, verified it myself. And then she says to him, Empire couldn't control my kind if they didn't keep a stranglehold on it, meaning it being the opalesque. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like this idea. What a shame that we have this failure of the spacers to take advantage of what does seem like a pretty good deal for them. Yeah. 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 And they, but they, you know, they run it through their galaxy brain and come up with a solution, come up with an answer that they, they don't have the tactical advantage in some way. So they, they divert, they decide not to. Yeah. So, but Hober has some good lines. He does try to sell. Like I was convinced. I thought he was going to do it. Yeah. He's a good salesman. 
He's a good yeah. salesman. Again, we question, was he sent there to intentionally fail or was he sent there thinking this guy's a good salesman? If anyone has a good shot to do this, then it's him. And then is what if he succeeded or what if he failed? Is Are both of those uh, outcomes uh, accounted for within the predictive model of psychohistory? That's an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and I'm sure that we will get the answer to that one by the end of the season, probably. <laughs> So um, this whole thing about uh, Hober being able to find them, that's a nice callback to Harry being able to predict the, um, you know, where the swarm, the, the, the swarm says, she's, she is center says, how did you find us? You know, we don't, that's, that's closely guarded stuff. And Harry predicted it, which is a nice call to uh, him being able to predict the moon strikes and the Invictus, the pattern, mm-hmm. the random patterns of the jumping. So that's all really a nice tied together uh, piece there. Right, right. Right, because that's yeah. what he does is patterning, right? He predicts patterns. Yeah. Seemingly random yeah. patterns, he can predict a, a logic to them. Right, especially especially swarms of people and yes. animals. <laughs> So uh, two last notes from me on this scene. When Glaywin and Bell are in bed, Glaywin is looking at a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, that book that I talked about last time, mm-hmm. which is a subpart of the Mahabharata, which is this giant Im- Indian epic. Not going to go into it all uh, in that moment, but they linger, they show us a shot of Glaywin turning over the pages. And then when he turns the page, we get a clear shot of a scene where a blue figure, a blue skinned figure is sort of ministering to a, a prostate figure, a figure that's sort of kneeling uh, before them. And it was clear as day to me that this shot was there. And this is a, a picture of um, the God Vishnu uh, ministering to Arjuna on the eve of battle. So, so, Okay. He hasn't been in his God form prior to this. They've been talking and he's been talking him through like, do you really want to go to war? You're going to kill all your cousins. Yeah, you have to because of this, that, and the other thing. And then at one point he turns himself into his God form and Arjun is like, whoa, you know, like I didn't know it was you and you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, and so he finishes sort of counseling him through this. So to me, again, it's a clear signal that they're using this story in, in some right. way. I don't know how they're going to use it, but it's 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 there very embedded. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I guess uh, we know Glaywin has been a little reflective this yeah, episode. For sure. And then lastly, uh, Glaywin, when they are talking about Sawena just before uh, she bends or she, you know, before the swarm jumps in, um, Glaywin posits – uh, that maybe the foundation is growing brain tissue outside of a human host to be able to navigate jumps. So again, yeah. one of those little throwaway lines, just like the opalesque mining that, you know, hmm, is there something? I don't think they there? are. I don't think they are. It seems like they're doing it all with computers, right? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe anyway. we'll have to wait for she subscribes to Patreon to tell us. <laughs> You're on fire tonight, John. This is good. I got no, got no comebacks. You're you're That's funnier right. than I am. So. That's all right. All right. Uh, back on Ignis, Gal gives a rousing speech to the village about the mule, psychohistory, and the future, and what it'll take to prepare for that future. Okay. Um, yep. Not a lot to say about this. No, just a, a nice, nice callback to the conversation about belief uh, in the previous episode with Polly and Constance. Yeah, that was good. That was good. 
Um, I I will say that Gail is certainly, I I think that Salver has read her completely when she says, maybe they can believe that and you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. You can't believe that you're their savior. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. Or that's going to be a big problem, buddy. And that's part of the, that what Harry was building and, you know, pointing to at is like, she'll be fine as long as you're there for her. And then, oh, that's really interesting because at the end of this episode, Gail doesn't have either of the two checks right, uh, right. of her balance anymore. Also, I don't think – okay, so Harry is certainly possessing some narcissistic tendencies, I would say. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. I don't think he sees himself as a literal savior. I think he sees himself as someone who sees the full picture and would like to prod things along in the right way. Right. Now, maybe he gives himself too much credit, but I don't think that he sees himself as some kind of real religious icon. Right. He just he uses the religious icon sure, as a tool. Sure. Just he and he understands that it's a tool. And he didn't even put it in its place, right? He mm. he just said, Oh, it looks like you've created a church. Okay, fine. He he kind of just accepts that that's a natural progression. He doesn't fight it and he doesn't put it into place. Right. Whereas he says, Gil oh, is you're like in, you're in this phase. Yeah. yeah, whereas Gail goes, on the third day, I rose again. And <laughs> yeah, she's just ready to be, she needs approval, right? I think Tellum really called her out on that. That's and true. Now yeah. you have yeah. her getting approval from everyone in the in the village. And, and she's getting that's going to be a problem. She's getting all gassed up by Tellum, right? right. She's really right. building her up. So Oh, Gail is the problem. Gail is the problem, everyone. Right in. All right, David, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll resume the episode. And we're back and hopefully not messianic anymore. David, (laughs) where are we at? On the home swarm, mother and daughter greet each other. Hober tries to make a play and is beat down, but always a few steps ahead, he's able to outwit the Empire and the Spacers and jump away. Yeah, I like the scene. It was, uh, I like that he could not fight off the two of them, but he outsmarted them with Becky. Yeah. That was a very Hober way to get out of there. Well, and he, he intentionally, the way that I read it after watching it the second time was that was all a play. He knew he was going to get his ass handed to him and he wanted to lull them into that font, that false sense of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You got me. All right. I've got, I've had enough pain. Oh, whatever. Here you go. And then yeah. Boom. So beautiful. Yeah. Pretend he's beaten. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's like his whole deal with switching bodies with the ruler of the city. Really clever stuff. Uh, I loved this um, point of she is center saying, you know, uh, Bell's like, oh, well, thanks for for coming to check us out. And she's like, boy, I wanted to see my daughter. (laughs) Right. right. You know, I got this jackass in tow. Fine. I'm going to hand him over to you. But like, really, I wanted to be here with my my little girl. And I love that even though the spacers are in this visibly uncanny valley, as you say. That's mm-hmm. a very human motive. That is a very, very deeply yeah. seated human motive. 
And you have to ask yourself if Hober had happened to treat with someone who didn't have a child taken for the tithe, who didn't have a child in Empire's custody, would he have successfully pitched? Whew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have really good question. You have the free spacers fight Empire. She has a chance of killing her own daughter. Mm-hmm. And that that's a deal breaker for her. And I don't blame right. her. I don't blame her. You know, I have kids. I probably would make a similar decision in this case of, well, but I know my kid's alive, right? And um, did Harry know, how much did Harry know about the spacer servitude and the tithing, the 10% tithing and how, oh yeah. Well, Hober even knew about the tithing. I'm sure Harry knew about the tithing. No, did Harry, did, I don't, did he know, I don't think he knew about it before Harry told him. So yeah, then I think that answers the question is, is that Harry, Dr. Selden, right, right. <clears throat> Dr. Selden in the, in the vault, right. The, the, uh, the edited memory of Selden. Right. Right. Probably briefed Hober on what was going on because he had to know to understand for his negotiations. Right. Right. I wonder so, why he didn't put himself into Hober's head. Just say, because Harry's, mm. Harry's a pretty good salesman himself. I mean, he's very good True. at explaining these things. Look at how he presented the mule to the mentalics. He did a pretty yeah. good job there. I don't know. Was Hilbert the right choice for this? Because I kind of feel like she has said or didn't take him that seriously. Well, maybe the whole gambit was designed to fail anyway. That's the, Fair enough. That's the flip of the Fair coin enough. that we don't know, right? We don't know if it was well if the mentalics would stop interfering with our corn flips then maybe we could <laughs> right maybe the point is is to empire to find out that they tried to flip the spacers and then that enrages empire and then they make a strategic blunder because they're so pissed off i could see that i could it's see a that. Playing 5d chess totally he's playing seriously seriously um this is the episode or the first time in the episode where I got worried that somebody was going to die. And I thought Glaywin was going to uh, get bit by Becky here. I thought, Becky yeah, I thought gonna, it was very possible. Yeah. So I got, and that's when for the tension for the rest of the episode, I really started to get ramped up and like, Ooh, yeah, somebody's going to die in this episode, you know, like, Oh, like, you know, and they did maybe they did. All right. Uh, Bell briefs Day and Demerzel, and Day worries if Foundation is uh, if Foundation had sent the Blind Angel assassins. Day cuts communications, and Glaywin and Bell argue about their situation. Bell worries about a lawless future if Empire fails, and Glaywin and Bell reconnect over Bell's sense of humanity. Yeah, um, I I do enjoy that Glaywin was almost testing Bell to see if he still had emotions yeah. after his yeah. long yeah. away. Because I, I, that was almost something that I was bothered by in the episode where they reunited was it just seemed like they like picked up right where they left off. And I don't know if that's really how that would go down after, what was it, 10 years? Uh, was it something like, yeah, something like that. Yeah. It was a long time. It, it was, was long a, time. a significant years, amount of time. Years, thought, thought his husband was dead. And they pick up without much of a beat missed. And there's like one, I think, little, well, are you sure you want to do this when uh, when they first go back into service? But right. that's really it. And they seem to not argue that much since. This was a great sort of look into how Glaywin's feeling, which I mm -hmm. didn't think we got before this. The weak are objects, the rapists are king, the poor are slaves, and life is nothing but emptiness and pain. 
well, I didn't know you were a poet, Bell. <laughs> so it's it was, as you say, it's a it's a really nice validation and reaffirmation of their relationship. I think there's even people who are speculating, like, why isn't Glaywin a secret agent for Empire? They had, you know, seven years or ten years or whatever it was to break him and to like turn him into a double agent or clone his ass and make him a, you know, a, a total recall, you know, storyline here. You know, they yeah. So I don't know. It was, it was really nice. Uh, on the topic of serving in the military with your spouse, um, and maybe, you know, that's not a great idea. Well, there's actually human history precedent, you know, on Earth Prime here precedent for this. And it was on the Bald Move uh, podcast with uh, Goyer, their interview with Goyer. They talk about this, the sacred band of Thebes, where there was 150 pairs of male lovers who were like the special forces of their army and they would go off on these crazy missions and this idea that you would you know you're, you're going to fight harder because your loved one is standing beside you and that you're all sort of bonded into this special unit with this high esprit de corps because it's spouses right so uh, it just goes in this idea that human history is just so rich and interesting and right. you don't you don't have to look very far to uh, to come up with interesting storylines that was tony gilroy right stop looking for stories in the future look for it in the past <laughs> exactly this uh, just going back quickly and, I, and we talked about this at the top of the episode uh, in my again very very light theory here theorizing here did Ignis, did Decided have something to do with the blind angel assassins? Because they, they clearly mention this word psycho-encryption. And as far as we know, the Foundation doesn't have... All of their efforts have been going into preparing for war with ships and guns and that kind of stuff. Whereas the Decided have the mental powers. So... Mm -hmm. And and Dominion has some mental powers, but it's mo it, it, maybe it just feels like it's about the memory stuff and really centered around Rue's ability or experiences and what they learned. Right. So did Ignis did tell him send the assassins? Maybe not, but did they have some part in the uh, technology, quote unquote, technology that allows the blind assassins to? Well, oh, here's something too: if they're blind, right? They showed them they don't have eyes. They have to have right, other senses. Right. So mm, that kind of strengthens my theory a little bit even more. Sure. Yeah. Tell him was involved. Are they and metallics? If, if Markley is Laurent's brother or related. So, oh yeah. And I'm, a lot I'm, of questions. I'm, 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 I'm doubling down on this theory. I'm doubling down hard. So, but would yeah. Markley not be able to find anything if that were the case? Or would he have at least something to offer Sarath so that he got better pay? Hey, bro, you know what? I need some intel on this so that I can get paid by Dominion. Right. You know, I I don't know. I feel like my brother, I would give him some more details. <laughs> well, you know, he's still got to operate within the con confines and circumstances of the of the empire as it is within the palace as it is. So, yeah, I don't know. They're they're still there's still more to figure out there, but I, right. I, I think there might be a connection. I think there might be a connection okay. because if, if, if Tellum has a, a inside play, you know, somebody on the inside in empire and, you know, she wants to, to, you know, she doesn't care a fig for the rest of humanity, right? She wants to collect all of her sighted on her planet. 
yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think there's something there. Right. Okay. We'll see. All right. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Day and Sarath meet in the garden where Day makes overtures. Sarath reminds Day that her dead family will now be his dead family. I love Day- that. <laughs> Day forces Sarath's obedience and Sarath makes plans to meet with Dawn. Boy, this was a rough scene to watch. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Sarath is really just letting it all go out in the open now. She's lost a little bit of the subtlety that she had. <laughs> this whole recounting of her family, her gentle father and her. Hey, you know how I have dead and- family? You know, my dead family. That's now your <laughs> dead family. How do you feel about dead family day? And then his it the, the extraordinary one of the extraordinary things for me in this is when he forces her to say, I am grateful, Empire. And it really demonstrates this whole scene demonstrates how weak this day is. He's a weak man who is in mm-hmm. way over his head and he's not capable of rule. He needs constant reaffirmation. Yeah. And and he has to uh, uh, power play. He has to just knuckle down on these people to get him to uh, you know uh, to 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 fall in line and to be obedient. Right. So, yikes. Um, this chemistry between Lee Pace and Ella Ray Smith is so good. And when she's like talking about her family, and he's like. How nice. And this little eye flick he does when he looks away and he's just sort of discomforted. It's so, so good. The acting is just brilliant in this show. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, she's a very good facial actor. Yeah. She's very good at portraying different things. Uh, so she's done a lot of like smirking and very like sure of herself kind of things in most of these episodes. And we can see that mask slipping a little bit because yeah. I think she is like many people, a complicated character. And she is, she is practiced now in manipulating politics to get what she needs. But she also is still someone who is scared to be in a world where she's lost a lot of her autonomy. Right. Right. And that's, that's a very complicated set of emotions to hold within one head. And she's playing big stakes here. This is right. Right. It's the game of thrones. It really is. It really is. Um, Is this the game of clones? Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. You need a she is a a, a line here for that. Is this the same spot that day confronted the gardener Azura uh, in season one? You know, where Mm. he says, I'm going to. It's his favorite. It's his favorite ball (laughs) dropping. That's right. uh, Yeah. Spot. But it was interesting, too, because at the beginning of the scene, he's trying to make overtures and like play nice and you're my, you're going to be my wife. So I've stopped, you know, fucking my robot, pardon my French. I'm, it's, I don't want to mean to be crass, but like, he's like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a good husband to you. And she's like, you murdered my family. You monster. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Imagine and, you're a servant in days, uh, you know, his, his, his group of servants. And he says, listen, Chuck, my servant Chuck, who's that's a name that you'd find in the series. <laughs> I need to see you at five on that bench in the garden. I'm not going to that. I'm I'm fleeing the planet as soon as I can. You're done. It's over. 
All right. In the tunnels under the city, a disguised Sereth and Dawn meet. Sereth confides that her family was killed, in fact, by Empire. And Sereth proposes that Dawn could sire their children, not Day. Sereth gives Day the pilfered medical device to reverse his sterility. Yeah, the can opener. <laughs> what do you do with that? I don't I, I need to know now. They intentionally made it to look terrifying like that. They kiss. This is suicide. No, this is a bloodless fucking coup. Don't they have like a museum in London where they have torture devices or something like that? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, there's plenty in. Uh, this well, belongs in there. Dental Are we museums? kidding? <laughs> me- Are we me- kidding? <laughs> no, get that away from my private parts. I want to talk to the production designer. I wanted to see how much fun they had uh, actually designing this thing. I need to know what 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 is this? What is the intention behind this? Because I am bothered by it. What did the doctor say too? Like uh, the the nanobots will like eat through and uh, bore out a new vast difference or something like that. Didn't I don't I? like that. I don't <laughs> like it. Nanobots shut it down. Around. Uh, really trippy starting of the scene, this sort of 360 or I think it was a 180 camera spin in the tunnel. It sort of twisted and it was, it was really bizarre. And then I, I noted that we learn, um, we learn a, a bunch of stuff. We learn that, uh, all the Cleons when they're 17, they get to go on the grand tour of Trantor and go to all the different districts. Uh-huh. Uh, and which he then tells us that the oculi don't work in the heat sinks so that they're safe. The oculi being the ever present uh, panopticon machinery, right? To watch right, everything. Right. That uh, this is when we're introduced to face, face scrambler technology, mm. which is not dissimilar to the stuff that Harry is using with. Yeah, his exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Although his is a little junkier. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And then we get this um, that all that the dawns are all warned about the one dawn who tried to escape and you know how that you know didn't go so very good. So we learn a whole bunch. They get it. They dump a lot of lore in yeah, this uh, in this I like it. scene. So uh, speaking of swirling test tubes um, and who's going to sire whose children, I really what, what year do you think that KitchenAid gets into sterility treatment? Oh, I know. I got you. Yeah. I, soon. It's not long. They, they need to, <laughs> to, they need to vertically stack into the medical industry, device industry. Um, this whole thing with, with Dawn siring the, the children, this reminded me of, uh, uh, of something again, you know, just look into our own histories for, or, you know, onto our own planet for interesting stuff. There's a species of cuttlefish where um, a male will defend like a harem, like you'll have like maybe two or three females, a big one, right? He'll defend, you know, uh, he'll try to collect up uh, several females and defend. Well, what smaller males will do is they will, because the cuttlefish can change its form and color, a small male cuttlefish will then make itself look like a female get into the harem and then mate with the other females behind the big males back and then take off. Whoa. And so I was like, Oh, this is totally cool. This is, you know, uh, Dawn, you know, sneaking in behind the, you know, the, the, the big stallions, uh, harem and, and, uh, dropping some seeds. So we're not fertilizing some seed, I should say. So I think I it's more cool. like when you see the lawn and you're pushing a wheelbarrow of seed <laughs> over it, it's, it's uh, less less voluntary. It does not seem like Dawn wants to get involved with this drama. No. Um, no. I, I have advice for you, Dawn. 
never promise crazy a baby. <laughs> That's an arrested development line if anybody it, recognized that. But it's it's a piece of truth though, right? It's, a, it's an absolute piece of truth. I think I think this is a bad move for you, Don. I really Very do. Very bad. Very bad. Um couple of more notes here. Um Sarith, I love how she's appealing to his sense of legacy in a couple of uh, episodes back when Dusk and Dawn are talking while they're waiting in the memoriam, waiting for the memory files to come up. Dusk says it's it's not about what you remember, but how you're remembered. So she, in this scene, Sarath is really appealing to his legacy and to this idea that he's going to soon be cut off and and not have, a, you know, not be the, the one true heir. So I thought that was really interesting. And then that goes into this whole question of sterility and genetic lineage and what makes us human, the spacers, right? They're human. They have children, they procreate, they have human motivations. And then we have another character out there, you know, that may not be. So Right, right. Interesting. I like all this philosophy coming in. Yeah. All right, Constance and Polly under very heavy guard. Again, brought- what? Why? Why? <laughs> well, for the end of the scene uh, is 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 why? Um, because they, I, I think it's because they detected the double brain pattern, so they were um, uh, okay. they're being super cautious. That's that's the way I read it. Mm. Anyway, they're brought before Cleon and pre- and they present him with a gift. <laughs> Polly offers an alliance uh, and peace with Foundation. Doctor Selden makes an appearance to underline the words of his cleric. But the girl, she looks like she's got something on her mind. Um, yeah. When will we learn to doubt when a thespian comes bearing a gift? Both yeah, a couple so. of just brilliantly delivered lines. Yeah, I get Lee Pace. How, how, how much more can we say about him? He's a great Oof. actor. We like him. So good. Uh, do you need? Maybe we should start selling atomic ashtrays in our merch store when we. When we... <laughs> I'm not selling any ashtrays. <laughs> no ashtrays coming from Lorehound Central. So somebody who's a book reader has to to comment on this. Is there atomic ashtrays in the books? Is this something that they lifted? Because certainly, I don't know. You remember you read the first book. It felt very uh, like they're smoking pipes and uh, yeah. have yeah. Know, so know. we have a foundation. Yeah, you hear old sport. Yeah, yeah exactly that kind so. of deal. It was halfway to the Great Gatsby. Um, Atomic Estray, I I loved Cleon's reaction to this when he goes, oh, absurd. And he, you know, he he just immediately just is like, all right, whatever, you weirdos. (laughs) What the hell's going on? So Polly, she doesn't take a knee. uh, and, And then she says, should I speak first or should you? Boom, callback, season one, when Harry gets called before Cleon at the trial. Mm-hmm. That's what Harry says. Oh, really? Yes. So, Oh, that's right. good. That's really good. And this good. is before we know that Cleon, or b- before we know that Polly has Spock's brain. In, oh, wait, sorry. I mean, Harry's uh, <laughs> brain on her. This is a very Star Trek search for Spock. Uh, Spock puts his consciousness in Dr. McCoy. Oh, and then I when they find Spock's body, he's able to reunite his body and with his mind. Great stuff. You know, Goyer, I think he's a big nerd. So I, I, I don't think he had to he, he had to know what he was doing here with this. That's fun. Do you so. know, I, I tried watching the original series. I actually got pretty into it. Okay. And my daughter, when she was one years old, I was into this. 
And she would stare at the screen in amazement whenever Spock came on screen. I don't know what it was. But anytime Spock came on, didn't matter if she saw anybody else. Spock, I got to stare at the screen right now. Oh, you should you should show it. Show her uh, Spock again. Maybe get a Spock poster or screensaver or something to watch over her as she sleeps. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Put a little Spock poster in there. (laughs) Um, This scene, uh, Jiraj Verasani, the actor who plays Polly. He was on fire this scene. It was so great. It was so great to see him stretching out and playing with the salesmanship thing and, you know, offering peace. I just really loved it. Yeah, he was he was really great. I I liked how he sort of didn't know how to approach it first, but he got more comfortable the more he talked. Yeah. I think he needed constant there to be like, all right, it's an ashtray. Can we move on? (laughs) Yeah. uh, So did you notice that uh, Day has a different breastplate and he's wearing a slightly different outfit than in previous ones? I didn't, but I'm sure you're about to tell me. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, it's um, it just goes like with this earring and his foppy hair and like this whole day is just rocking a whole different vibe. Imagine you um, just said to me, actually, it was the same outfit. Trick question. <laughs> no, no, no trick question. That's cool. No, yeah. No, 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 no he's, this is rock and roll day. You know, the, yeah, he's totally he's very uh, he's almost got like a an 80s hairstyle. Mm-hmm. A 70s, maybe. I don't know. But it's it's very laid back. He's, very he's, cool. I'm, I'm cool day. I'm a yeah, cool, he's dad. cool day. He's very cool day. Um, yeah. And then I think we talked about this earlier that there's just that whole buildup of, of Constance um, having this dual brain thing and all the little funny lines she's saying. So it, it caught me. I was I was taken. I was hoodwinked. So. All right. Fair enough. Do you think that Harry's plan is a good one to go there and dare day i think i'm I'm, i as we're talking about this and and talking it through a little bit more i think the whole point of of both the spacer maneuver and this is to goad the whole point is to goad foundation into rash action okay and to jump the gun and to um uh just try to get up in foundation's face before they're really ready to right it's they're taunting they're taunting foundation this is just a giant taunt so it's very strange, though, for Harry to tell the warmongers on Terminus, no, we're definitely not fighting. We're going to make peace, but then send the peaceful people to go start a war. So then maybe when the peaceful where well, well, with the foundation, when they're like, oh, well, OK, maybe we'll chill out a second. And then, oh, nope, here they come. Like it, it it's like uh, he's 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 goading both sides. In a way. But is he making the foundation less prepared because they're less likely now to establish military bases and to build up forces now well, that they know that that's not the plan? It's so sure. It's such a they've already done all the prep that they can do at this stage. And at this stage, it's it's, it's a there's there's no more big strategic moves. But they're talking about can we set up more bases on planets like there's always more you could do to be prepared for. Right. But that's action, right? that's in a time span of like decades. And I think we're in a time span of of, you know, uh, less than a year here. Right. It's, okay. This is tactical maneuvering. Now. Right. So I, I think that. I think it may be a kind of. Surprise attack. Whoa, suddenly foundations on our doorstep. Well, F them like, let's go, boys. And, you know, uh, and then they get all rallied. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm sure we'll see in the next couple episodes. All right. Fair enough. Um, This is the second time when I was worried that we were going to lose a character. And I thought we were. Yeah, I thought Constance was dead. Yeah. 
so. thought she was dead dead and i liked her a lot i think she's uh she's pretty funny i so i'm really I'm i was not. very i was very dubious of the drunk and the monk when we first met them in in episode one and i'm yeah. really i really do not want to not have these characters. they've got good chemistry i right. do think i do think we're due for a time jump at some point uh mm. before next season and we will end up losing a lot of these new characters i think that yeah this show is is it can either go one or two ways we could spend a couple scenes with these people or we're gonna jump forward and lose all of our side characters from this season which is gonna be tough because um that's one of the unfilmable aspects of the foundation books is that they leap so far ahead that every time you go to a new book you don't have any of the same old characters and you're starting all over again so right yeah right um last note on the scene is just this eyes of, of a thespian right you know day gets up into constant's face and says the line yeah, about yeah. um the eyes and so yeah i don't know what I, I don't know what that's all about uh and i don't know if it has to do anything with the mule but um it's there well wasn't there that i know that was the anacreans mostly but weren't the thespians involved with the whole anacreon thing when they had the the um the sky bridge yeah 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 yeah, they were all set up for that. Yeah, I think that that's part of it. Yeah, well, no, for sure. That's that's exactly what's going on. It's just, is it, d- does the blue eyes have anything to do with the mule later on? That's the, that's right. the question. Good question, yeah. All right, uh, let's wrap it up. On Ignis, Salvor attempts to solve the mystery of the boat. She's confronted by Gale and they argue. They're seen by Laurent and Gale pulls rank. Later that night, Salvor sneaks out and steals the boat and discovers Harry's body. She's confronted by Tellum, who unthinks her life. Sometimes a little death is necessary. I like how you put that there. She unthinks her life. (laughs) I was trying to describe. She She murders her. She she shoots her. Like, yeah. And did you notice she does the little finger thing just like uh, uh, Empire does? She's like, boop. Yeah, yeah. So, Although I think hers is doing it more directly than Empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. it's Tellum, yeah. right? So, yeah, and that's a question. Did did Tellum is Tellum that powerful that she can just murder somebody with her mind? Uh, there was a well, scene- I, I don't think she murdered her. I thought she put her to sleep and to, so that she would drown. That's that's the question I had. That's exactly the question. Is it? Did that's she that's just how knock I read her it. out. That's how I read it. Okay, is knock her out while she's in the water. She'll drown. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, because she's just they sh- they go into that drone shot overhead, and she's just sitting there floating face down. So yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so remember what I said earlier in that scene about uh, them in the village, and they were boiling the the ghost mollusks and and talking about you know pain. Do we honor pain? You know, because we we cause pain by just being existing. And but you know the difference between us and the rest of humanity is we honor it. Dude, next to tell him. There's a guy, there's guy, two guys on either side of her. Yeah. They cut to him really quick in one of those guys and he's crying. He's doing the whole like crying thing. So like he's crying for Salvor knowing that she's going to get murdered here. And I was like, oh boy, this is like seriously culty. This is, this is way off base here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not great. It's not great. I, I'm really wondering if anyone's going to have enough of what Tillam's doing. Right. But, uh, maybe Josiah. We have hope. For <laughs> yeah, because I don't see. think Gail's going to do it. I think Gail is kind of um, in the cult now. I'm High totally in the cult. I'm totally stumped where the story's going to go now. I, you know, they they've taken Salvor and Harry off. I, I'm like, 
at least one of the Harrys we have. And, and can you, how many times can we bring Harry back like that without getting ridiculous, without jumping the shark? So, right. Well, I think he, there's, there's a strong possibility that he will respawn on Una's world and, and Kale will just be like, (laughs) fuck man, I just gave you a new body. Now I got to do it again. And then he's got to go all the way back to Ignis and he's got to find the spot so he can pick up all his gear and hope nobody looted his gear while his body right, was laying right, there. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah oh, these spawn boy. points are not generous in this game. <laughs> um, it was nice that this is where we got the episode title. Uh, this is where Tellum says, you know, that sometimes a little death is necessary. So I just like it when they do that little connectivity stuff in the, the scene when they're on the beach, when, when Gail and, and Salva are on the beach, just beautiful. Yeah. Or just light. They're on location. The wind is blowing. They're actually on the, on the surf and you cannot do that on a soundstage, right? So that they're actually out in the world. And, and then there's this point where Salva is in the light and Gail is in shadow. And then later Gail's in light and shadow. So they're playing with that visual language of, you know, right. motivations and, and stuff. So it's just all really, really good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. one more little comment too, was a uh, Salvar comments that, um, growing up, she was, uh, always called special and it really messed with her, hmm. messed with her head. And that just reminded me of that line that tell them right. says a couple of like, don't worship children. It's not right good for them. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, people, Kids need a normal growing up. That's the whole point of Harry Potter. You let him grow up under the cupboard in an abusive household and he'll just be better. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the point was with that, Joanne, but I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, well, yeah, that's the that's the episode. That's the scene. Um, yeah. Good episode. As, as far as we know, Harry is dead and Salver is dead. Are they really dead? I've been so trained by shows to have the, our main characters crawl out from underneath the dumpster in the next episode. So <laughs> I think it's mostly been a game of Thrones issue. Although I've heard walking dead was just as bad with it. Yeah. Well, that's the reference is Glenn client. One of the characters climbing. Okay. Out. We, yeah. They totally show us like, Oh, you know, he's dead. And then the next episode he crawls out from under a dumpster. So, all right. As a reminder, send us feedback empire at the lorehounds.com. Uh, or head over to our website, thelorehounds.com, and there you can use a voicemail feature or use a contact form. Just send us a note. As well, we have our Discord server, which you can post messages. Lots of folks chatting about things, theorizing, um, posting pictures, or having fun. And sometimes I'll go, we'll go in there and scoop up a comment or two. John, would you do the honors? Absolutely. First up, we have Marilyn Arpukila, our favorite Tolkien scholar. She says, hello, Lorehounds. How in the world do these episodes keep getting better and better? Right. Not through the use of AI, that's for sure. I should mention that these are all from after episode six. So we are talking. They These people are talking about episode six. We're recording this for screeners, so seven has not aired yet. Um, she continues, may I say I really like John Josiah theory. Hey, thanks, Marilyn. Uh, Once again, they're weaving in so many of the ancient stories and tales so that even if we don't know them by name or synopsis, there's still enough of them in our cultural background that they sort of tug at us and sound familiar. And they certainly have been focusing on this one kid out of all the other sighted ones. I really hope that he doesn't turn into the mule. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it, Marilyn, is that even if it's not something that you know about explicitly, it's sort of in the soup of humanity. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, she continues, Tellum's level of untrustworthiness makes Harry look like a kindergarten teacher. Her so-called open-handedness is usually a screen for the real intention, and she could give Harry lessons in manipulation. If they're not <laughs> careful, they're going to turn her into an unbeatable foe whose skills and abilities are so far beyond anyone else's that no one can overcome her because no one can tell what is and isn't real anymore, nor can they keep their thoughts from her. Gail may be strong in her abilities, but she has no training in them. And I'm sure, and I'm not sure, she'll ever be able to grow into them successfully in a world that Tellum rules. Totally agree. Tellum is very scary right now. And I'm hoping that they figure out a way to defeat her. We right. will see. But she really needs to get defeated. Could you imagine if uh, Harry had any mental abilities at reading people? Boy, he would have been a scary mofo too. So I, yeah. I think Tellum's is. Tellum may not have the mathematics, but she is, you know, I, I love a good um, evil villain in a show where their motivations are very rooted and grounded and, and you can relate to them, right? She's just trying to protect these people who are outcasts of society and that's a relatable goal. But yeah. damn, right? She is a monster in her own rights uh, in in the ends that she will pursue to justify her means or the means that, yeah, whatever, you know what I mean? Means yeah. justifying ends. Yeah. You know, something I will point out that I just realized is last episode, she was very clear. I, this isn't murder. I would never kill one of our own. <laughs> well, you here did. you go. You oh, just right. did. Yes. Didn't think about that. murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The rules right. bend whenever you want them to, huh? That's tell right. them. What is it uh, uh, for my friends? Everything for for everyone else. The law, right? or just <laughs> just this idea that you know you know we'll we'll bend and manipulate whatever sociological structures there are, so that our core group is 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 has the integrity, and the rest of you can you know f off. Right. Right. All right, she says, regarding Polly and Constant and their approaches to Harry Seldon, what Polly has is experience. He shook Harry's hand with echoes of Jesus's first post-resurrection appearance to the doubting Thomas, yeah. who had to actually touch Jesus's body to determine that he was real. By contrast, Constant has belief, and she lived and acted upon it until she felt Harry's hands on her head, offering her a blessing. Well, we know now he offered her more than that. Uh, <laughs> her first experience of the one that she had believed in her whole life. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I think that's one of the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Um, she also had faith in Harry and the plan, i.e. she trusted both of them. I think Polly's faith slash trust, never as great as Constance, was shaken when the warden was fried. I also think he's somewhat humbled by Constance's approach. And while he has experienced Harry, I'm not sure how much faith he has ever had in him. It seems to me that belief in something simply means you believe in its factual existence because you've experienced it, but that doesn't mean you have faith in it. Okay, mm. that's a good distinction. This mm -hmm. is I, I believe in something factually. I don't I don't worship the Big Bang, but I believe in it factually. Although I think that some didn't a scientist recently challenge that anyway? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You get what I mean? Yeah, I, it it's this really great question that the show has opened up about this thing between faith and, and belief. And yeah, I, I, there's a lot in our modern age that we believe in and there's very little that 
I, I'm trying to think of what do I have faith in versus belief. I mean, I believe when I get on the airplane, it's going to fly. I believe that, you know, when I um, open my phone and, and uh, I've got whatever notifications that the electrons zipped and zapped and zooped across the, the world and, you know, I'm, I'm talking to somebody real. But what do I have faith in? I don't know what I have faith in right now. I have faith that I'm tired, so I'm going to continue this. <laughs> I'm very sorry, Marilyn says. No more, no more philosophical. Move yeah. on, David. Move on. Marilyn continues. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Quantum physics is not in my wheelhouse. I will have to leave that to other listeners to address. However, I did ride horses for a few years, and one of the things I was told was that horses will always avoid stepping on anything if they can possibly help it because their feet are only defense. Run away, run away, and are hmm. easily damaged. Interesting. I don't know if the showrunners were extending that same tendency to Moonstrikes or not, but that's what it reminded me of when I watched Harry standing, uh, Harry standing stole, stone still as the herd streamed past him. Perhaps he simply observed the pattern that they never stepped on anything if they could avoid it. Since both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis hated sci-fi literature, which talked too much about how the tech works, I don't think they would have cared that much for the finer details of things like the composition of the vault or the structure of the spacers hives or how foundation jump tech works either. Yeah. Um, I think this is in response to something that we talked about last episode, which was sort of a comparison between the expanse and this, whereas the expanse mm -hmm, is really right. interested in details like that. Scientific yep. details. Foundation is more big ideas. What if tech could do this? Right. Thought experiment stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, and when I say Sarath and Day deserve each other, I mean that they are equally manipulative and equally ruthless in obtaining in obtaining their ends. Mm. Whatever you may think about those ends, morally or otherwise, they certainly feel that their means, any means, are justified by them. I don't know. I haven't seen Sarath kill anybody yet. Not yet. For it. <laughs> Not yet. I mean, it's a bloodless coup that she's right. That's in. true. That's true. Will she? Yeah. Would she go there if she needed to go there? Yeah. Can't wait till next Friday, she says. And then she has two PSs. <laughs> First one says, the one thing about quantum physics that I do understand intuitively is to observe a thing is to change it. What this has to do with superpositioning and at least two prime radiants. The third one on Una's world is the woman who claimed to be the prime radiant, as I see it, existing at the same time in different places. I can't tell you. What, this, a, uh, what a crazy uh, statement, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that there's a third, you know, we don't know what the Calais figure is on Una's world. So how I think that that's relates. a robot. I'm still convinced that's a robot. I, I'm I'm more in line that it's something along those lines and not necessarily connect. I think the Prime Radiant was taking on different guises to speak to Harry, to to try to um, right. coax him along. I don't know that it, it's actually Calais in there. Um, but there was something earlier that I was uh, wanted to say there. There are multiple instances in this episode where either Dawn or Day, both of them say this, you know, I studied, you know, I studied when Dawn tried to escape or Day says, oh, I studied you, Harry, you know, when, when uh, yeah. he's there. And so that goes into, it, it really made me think of this whole observer effect of like, oh, well, I'm aware of this thing. I'm aware right. that this effect is in play in here. And then how does that change the calculations of how you might respond or react to something? So, right. Yeah. Good question. I, um, 
was Harry dead before she uh, before <laughs> before Salvor found him? Or was he <laughs> opened the box? Uh, right, yeah, yeah. He's the cat. All right, Duve seventy one Loremaster writes in via email. Hi, John and David. Well, that was indeed a very dense episode. I think this episode of the pod is a great example of how a deep dive discussion of a series of like Foundation enhances the experience of watching a show. Well, thanks, Duve. Indeed, that's what we're here uh, for. He says after watching the app and listening to the pod, I have some musings. The fact that it was dropped casually that the mule is a mentalic led me on a headcanon theory that Josiah is the mule. There John's is again. point about the biblical connection of the name and a righteous king reinforced this thinking as we know how someone who has trauma like Josiah can lead to zealotry and atrocities all in the name of a righteous cause. The only wrinkle in that idea is David's comment about the mule and the book. Yeah, and I, I would say the other wrinkle is just the mule needed to know where Ignis is. If if it's Josiah, why was his memory wiped or something? I guess you could, there are ways to get around that, but I yeah. don't know if I would like them. Did they leave and they're not on Ignis anymore? And you know, this is 152 years in the future no, that, or whatever. No, because remember, uh, oh, they he's only trying found to find Ignis. him in the present. They only found Ignis because. Uh, that was where the mule was looking for, and oh, Harry right, had Gail right. look in her mind for where that actually was. <sighs> it's all so wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yeah. yeah. Duve continues, John, but I'm sorry, but this is a Gen Z versus X divide. How dare you, Duve? I'm a millennial. <laughs> pride, pride on the millennials. Uh, divide on close encounters effects. I enter into the case. For my defense, my Gen Z daughter, who has a visceral dislike of movies and TV shows over 10 to 15 years old due to wow, production visceral. values and visual effects. She loves Close Encounters and commented on how great the effects were. She was blown away when I said it in 1976. This is a hill I shall die on, John. <laughs> Dude, I, I want to be clear. I've not watched this. I have no idea what it looks like. I was just poking fun at David. Maybe <laughs> I will watch it one day. Maybe that'll be on an old man movie. Uh, and I don't have a visceral dislike of old movies. My grandpa used to show me Abbott and Costello movies when I was a kid. I used to, I used to watch plenty of old movies. Uh, I just was having fun on the podcast <laughs> don't take do. everything i say so seriously as that's, we do that's as my advice do. yeah um this series is tackling the really big issues uh with a heck of a lot of religious allegory going on some examples i previously mentioned on discord about the on the nose christian connections Bhag- bhagavad gita bhagavad gita yep 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 uh abrahamic etc uh, Vault Har- Harry looks like the Old Testament Yahweh-style God. We then have the Reborn Harry, who himself keeps mentioning that the Foundation 1 and 2 needs a Messiah-like figure. But the show seems to hint Gale could be a Messiah-like figure for the Metallics. Even Demerzel could be for the Machines. Lots of false dragons being set up crossing <laughs> nice the streets play. on product, yeah. Nice. Uh, that's before we got into the whole spacer combination of human and machine foundations, Borg hive mind without the S and M fascism. I'm not sure what this is. Is this something from the books? Yeah. The, well, the, uh, Borg in science in star Trek and, uh, yeah, you had to see a couple okay, of movies okay. to get into their S and M. Yeah. All right. Uh, season one seemed to build up Harry's academic arrogance in terms of psycho history and the fall of Empire. In this episode, we see that Harry has serious beef with Empire, with skin in the game. This highlights the really interesting link between Harry and the episode title. 
Final comment, I love this version of Dusk, bone dry, and icing some hilarious side-eye during Dave's massively <laughs> underwhelming speech. Keep on keeping on. Thanks, Steve. This was a fun piece of feedback. This got me thinking about a lot of stuff with the Messiah theories. I think, you know, I, I listened to the Dune podcast for Properly Howard today, so the Messiah is on the mind. And, uh, yeah, well, and I'm, again, not, it, I'm not sure where we're going with it. All this religious iconograph, I, I can't, I, oh, I can't say it. No. Iconography? Iconography, thank you. Um, all of this stuff, this is what writers do, right? They, they build these parallels. They do these twinnings. They, they create these visual homages to things. This is what good writing is about. And it just really wish the studios would get off the, their damn nut about this and let these writers do the work because this is fabulous stuff. This is product. This is a show that's going to stand up over time and it's going to be more interesting and you, you know, just like, ah, uh, anyway, but yes, I love all the, I love all the, the visual imagery that Juve that you're, you're referring to here with, um, um, uh, religious, all these different li- religious figures running around the show. David, I just got an email from Bob Iger. He wants to meet with you on day's bench in right. about 10 minutes. <laughs> Can I bring the little nanobot, uh, can opener thing with me? <laughs> Uh, days uh, purge bench. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> well, thanks, dude. That was fun. Thanks, uh, we got a couple more. Brian8063 on Discord. Loremaster, Brian8063, says uh, episode six. This was uh, all way in the weeds. But one thing that caught my attention is that Empire owns all faculty work. As someone who works at a university, this is m- uh, becoming more of a reality. There has been a pretty long debate about copyright and intellectual property with faculty and administrators. In the private sector, this is also an issue. Harry is forced into a situation where he puts his work under the radar as much as possible. Yeah, everybody yeah. wants a bite of that sweet IP, right? You want to be able to you know, make money off of these intellectual products. Well, we just brought up the writer's strike. I was listening to a really interesting conversation with um, Adam McKay. Yeah. Uh, on the A More Civilized Age po- podcast. He's, Adam McKay did Adam Ruins Everything, if you knew that true TV show. And um, he had a point that writers for TV actually gave up their IP rights in the writing and gave them to the studios in exchange for royalties, in exchange for these right. percentage of profits, percentage right. of, of the money made. And that's why it's such a big issue that they're refusing to do this for things like streaming. And uh, yeah, everybody wants the IP, right? Because yep. uh, at one point, somebody said no to George Lucas with Star Wars, and now George Lucas owned that and got to sell it to Disney instead of a studio owning that, right? Right. And George Lucas, uh, I think, famously uh, created the toygenic market, right? He um, he had a piece of the action figures and all of the merch that came out of the the, the movies, and which made him crazy wealthy. And then everybody was like, Oh, dude, like we could do that. Right. So, yeah. Get me Robert Dowdy Jr., they said. (laughs) Uh, Cast of Troy on Discord says this wasn't my favorite episode, but upon watching it again, it showed so many interactions and setups. I liked it more and more. But I think that I will write an email as I have so much to say here. Uh, I will say Vault Harry slash Harry is a narcissist and a monster by sending a young, naive girl and Polly, who's a mess, to their deaths. Dawn was staring at Sarath, who I think might have been a better choice to gain power and end the dynasty. But she went for the jugular jugular and weakness, i.e. day. 
Dawn was trying to figure out what she was about to do, and Dusk had a small smile and thinking, you fool, you just got played, as Demerzel touched her salt charm on her bracelet. Well, you didn't get around to writing it on email cast, but we appreciate your Discord message anyway, because this is this is some good stuff. That that scene with the speech was really delicious. It, it was, was great. Really great. I don't even know that day was she expected to give a speech or did she just grab did she just jump into the spotlight and start talking? Because when Day looks over his shoulder at her, he's like, Whoa, wait, what is she doing? And then um, she goes really far with it too. It's not even like, right, Oh, my loyal right. subjects. I'm so happy to be your empress. Is, is, you know, she went like, yo, <laughs> we got your back people, you know, right. Right. Bring it. Yeah. And she then was, what, she was all like smash the bourgeoisie all of a sudden. You know? uh... <laughs> Here's all the cake. <laughs> help, help yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. And then Demerzel touching her little salt charm. We have not heard anything about the triple goddesses uh, this whole season. So I wonder how that's going to play out in the future and what they're now just the double goddesses. One of them went solo, (laughs) got signed with a different record label. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, and that's a good question. Demerzel's faith. When we get into this whole belief versus faith thing is as a robot, can she have faith? Well, didn't she experience the vision that day? Didn't that, that day. Right. Right. Exactly. So is that belief because she experienced it or is it faith? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. We got to end this podcast wow. tonight because it's too late to I be know. getting into these deep I know. philosophic conversations. So, Well, thanks again, Cass, and to everybody who wrote in because it's always more fun when we can have conversations with the listeners. Again, right. you can send this to empire at thelorehounds.com. Go to our website, thelorehounds.com, or you can head on our Discord and we'll pull some of those. David, yes. time for an outro. We should uh, run this real quick, uh, but yes, we have to talk about our affiliates who are our dear friends who podcast alongside of us. Um, Properly Howard Film Review just released their Dune episode. They're doing remakes this season of their movie reviews. Check that on the feeds right now. You, John, me, and Alicia all got to uh, hang out with Steve and Anthony for that podcast. That was a lot of fun. That was fun. Yeah, I was listening to it today, and it was a really fun conversation. There's G.I. Joe in it. Yes. For some reason, there's like G.I. Joe talk. There's some would you rathers there. It's it's really great. And the great thing about the Properly Howard movie reviews is that you don't have to have seen the movie to enjoy their podcast. It's a, it's a lot of fun, a lot of banter, a lot of pop culture nonsense. So check out their feed in the uh, show notes below. Next episode will be out August 28th, and it's going to be RoboCop 2014 Ooh, remake. Nice. Um, over on the Wool Shift Dust uh, feed with... Uh, Alicia, she's covering Dune. Hey, more Dune. We've got a plenty. We got a lot of Dune. We got a lot of spice in your in your uh, podcast ears this month. I'm breaking down on all these crazy analogies. We're just going to talk about the fact that Alicia's covering Dune. She's covering the book, talking about books, talking about disc, um, documentary films, video games, the whole culture of Dune, the history of Dune, and, and this is all sort of moving in prep towards the big Dune movie later this year. So go check out her podcast, Wool Shift Dust. Also, the Wool Shift Dust Book Club is um, in progress. That is a uh, they're covering each of the three Wool Shift Dust books, and you can find uh, stuff for that on Patreon uh, at Patreon.com/slash/WoolShiftDust. Cool, John. What's uh, what's happening with us? I, it's it's a uh, crazy. So much. We have a bunch of different shows running all at the same time. We have Wheel of Time coming up very quickly. And you and I are already recording episodes for that because we are 
we have screeners for it. And we so do. we will be dropping three episodes the day of the premiere on September 1st. So you will get plenty of podcasts that day, as well as a foundation podcast that will come out that day. Also, we have a third show running concurrently, Ahsoka <laughs> on Disney Plus, where we don't have screeners. So those episodes are going to come out on Saturday. The uh, yeah. the podcast will come out on Saturday. Also, we just can't flood the feed that much on Fridays. We got plenty coming out that day. Yeah, it's just too much to be for people to listen to, and then they end up never listening to stuff. So we want to right, make sure right. we, we meter it out. But right. man, some of those trailers for Ahsoka are looking fire. It got me hype. It got me Big hype. Time. When I'm in the very limited time I have right now, because of so many shows we're covering, I am listening to the Heir to the Empire first book, mm-hmm. and I very much doubt that they're pulling much from this because it's so divorced from where they are in the timeline right now, but there's a lot of cool stuff, and I hope that they pull a lot of the personality points of Thrawn from okay. it. Okay, nice. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be a good series. Oh, do you know uh, Joanna Robinson from The the Ringer? She, uh, I guess some industry in the know people got to go to uh, private screenings of okay. uh, this. And she wrote on her Twitter feed that uh, it was good. And she's very happy. Oh, good. So good. that g- gives me faith. I have faith, yeah. John. I have faith in something. I finally found something I have faith in. Look at Dave you. Dave Filoni. Look at you. Yeah, so Brendan and I are going to be playing uh, Skyrim, The Elder Scrolls V on the Lorehounds play. That's going to come out either late in the month or very early September. We've got to get that scheduled because, you know, things are life. busy right now with all these things yeah. and life. Yeah, uh, we did drop a, an episode of Second Breakfast exclusively for patrons, patrons recently. Uh, we had a One Piece episode recently that I, I actually got feedback on today, which is fun. Yep. And uh, yeah, so we are we are doing a lot of stuff. Are you are you doing an MC Universe recap of Secret Invasion? Is that happening? Worse. (laughs) (laughs) There was supposed to be something happening, but I think August is uh, I think we just you know, the the lesson that we learned this summer is that, you know, June, July and August programming are tough because everybody's this way and that way. So, yeah, our schedule is kind of out the window here. I can also ask you, is it worth talking about again? <laughs> yeah, I've got to talk to Alicia and Jean and see where they're at, too, uh, and yeah, see what we want yeah. to cover. We do have there is some news. There's some interesting stuff coming up. So yeah. we, we could just you could probably combine base. it, right? All right. Yeah. Combine it with uh, Blue Beetle talk. Wait, Blue, Blue Beetle's DC, isn't it? Blue Beetle. Don't ooh, don't at me. Don't quote oh, me. No, I don't hold know. Hold on. Hold on. Let me let me Googles. let me do this. Blue Beetle. <laughs> Blue Beetle's uh, well outside my. Um, yeah, I've heard some mixed things about it. Very mixed things. Yeah, they were talking on, uh, there was some chatter on uh, our Discord today about it. And the just some, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say too much. I mean, this go on the is Discord a DC Comics property. Okay. So this is not the MCU. Yep, this DC. The DCEU. Yep. I guess that's what they call their film. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, with Jean and Alicia and I have got to talk and, and recalibrate and we're going to see where, yeah, the hard part right now is, as we said, we've just got foundation, uh, Ahsoka and, and wheel of time, uh, all overlapping. So we'll, we'll see where we are with the yeah. MCU in September. Yeah. But anyway, here's to another two plus hour foundation podcast. <laughs> Hope everyone's still enjoying the ride. We'll be back again next week. And I promise it will probably be around the same length. <laughs> John, thanks. Thanks, everybody. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities.
Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.